Welcome to the podcast. You can listen to us on the go. Keep listening to our weekly episodes to find out more. Today's sponsor is Headspace. You slept every night of your life, so you should be pretty good at it by now, right? Unfortunately, many of us don't get the quality sleep that we need and could use a little bit of help, and that's where Headspace has got you covered. It's your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app, and while they have meditations devoted to helping you reduce stress and increase your overall sense of well-being, they have an entire library of sleep stories, sleep music, and other sleep sounds that can help you get the quality sleep you desperately need. And for busy lifestyles, they have what's called wind downs. It's meditations and breathing exercises that are as short as three minutes so they can fit into anybody's schedule. I personally use Headspace myself. I've tried out some of the sleep stuff. It actually works. Like to me, it actually makes a difference. So Headspace, it's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews. That's a lot and over 60 million downloads. Try it today for free and start sleeping soundly. So right now, our listeners get 30% off Headspace's entire library of meditations. Just go to headspace.com slash sleeppod for 30% off your subscription, but only until May 12th. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash sleeppod today. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that's keeping you from happiness or preventing you from reaching your goals? Well, this has been a really hard year, of course, as we all know, and I know that sometimes even I need some help from the outside with the struggles that I'm having, and that's where BetterHelp comes in. They give you access to licensed and accredited psychologists, therapists, and counselors, all from the comfort of your own home. They're gonna assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist who can start communicating with you in less than 48 hours, and you're gonna be able to connect with them in a safe and private online environment that makes therapy convenient and less intimidating. You can message your counselor at any time and you'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions if you need more hands-on communication. This is not a crisis line, just FYI. It's not a self-help line. It is a professional counseling service done securely online. And so many people have been using it, in fact, that they're now recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. So I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash SPI. You can join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash SPI. This episode of the podcast might be the most important episode ever recorded. And the reason I say that is because it affects your mindset, it affects your mental health, it can affect the other people around you too. Our special guest today, Michael Hyatt, who's been on the show before, loves talking about something called the double win. What is the double win? The double win is this idea that you can win at work and succeed at life. And within the world of entrepreneurship especially, whether you're just starting out or you've been doing this for a while, you know that there's a constant balancing act with relation to what you do and when and how it involves all the parts of you, from the personal side and the things that happen there to the work side and the things that happen over there. And Michael Hyatt's coming out with his new book called Win at Work, Succeed at Life, who he's co-authored this with, with his daughter. It's just an amazing read. It's one of those ones that when you read it, especially if you have kids, but you know, even if you don't, but Michael and Megan are so great as a pair of, of writers here. The five principles to free yourself from the cult of overwork. There are some things mentioned in this episode that were really surprising to me. Some stuff that Michael does with his team, some stuff that he does personally 
to help him and his team give themselves the best chance to succeed, again, at both work and at life. And if there's one thing that, if you've ever heard me talk about Michael Hyatt before, you know that I admire him, not just because of his success as a businessman, but because of his success as a father and a husband. And we get into that as well. And I'm very much, so much appreciative of his time today to share, not just with me, but with all of you, the principles that we could use to get out of that feeling that things are always with tension and we can have some sense of balance. Now, there are myths around balance as well that we'll discuss, but this is the episode that you need to listen to right now. So make sure you stick around. Here we go. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, his go-to breakfast is a breakfast taco, Pat Flynn. What's up, everybody? Pat Flynn here, and welcome to session 475 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Wow, that's a lot of podcasts. And we've touched on these kinds of topics before with relation to work and life at home and how those things work together. I've been sharing that journey with you ever since I started to the point where I had kids and that changed everything to the point where the kids started going to school and that changed everything. Things always seem to change. But the cool thing about principles are that it doesn't matter what happens, really. The principles will always remain the same. And we're gonna talk about certain principles to free yourself from the cult of overwork, something that can burn you out and perhaps even like some friends of mine who've been on the show before who have shared these stories about burnout and overwhelm end up in the hospital. We don't want that to happen, obviously, either. So let's just dive right into this episode with Michael Hyatt, a leader of leaders, one of my virtual and you know virtually online mentors, but just honestly, one of my best friends. I, I absolutely love spending time with Michael. He and I have gone fishing together. His wife, Gail, just has welcomed me into their home. They're just so amazing. And if you wanna check out this book, you can go to winandsucceedbook.com slash SPI. We'll talk more about the links later, but let's just dive right in. Here's Michael Hyatt. Michael, welcome back to the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks, Pat. Always a joy to be on. And you're back with yet another amazing book, with an amazing title, and it seems like you're just churning them out like crazy. How, I just need to know, <laughs> how far in advance do you have these books planned, and, and what, like, are you writing every day? It's just, you're a machine. Yeah, well, I, I do write almost every day, but usually we've, we're planning three years in advance. So right now we're working on the book that'll be out three years from now. So it takes that long because the publisher wants them a year in advance, and by the time you do all the research, the interviews for case studies, all that kind of stuff, it just just takes time. But we've we've got it down to a well-oiled machine now, and I've got a great content team that helps. That's amazing. And, and, and part of the reason why I'm asking is because this book literally is about work-life balance. And so for me on the outside, seeing somebody like you who is both, you know, a machine when it comes to the content that you're creating and the amazing work that you're doing, plus I see you you know, out on the lake with your family or going on vacation or doing these things together. It's just, how do you do it? And I know you've answered these questions in, in the book, but from a high level, I'd love your thoughts on just this idea of work-life balance, something that all of us entrepreneurs starting or even those who've been in it for a while always are thinking about. It just seems like a never-ending battle. It does. And I mean, I had all but given up on it. There was a point in my career where I just said, just not possible. And Gail and I sort of entered into this pact 
where I would man the fortress, you know, at work and she would hold the home front and, you know, occasionally we'd see each other. But back in the year about 2001, I got my dream job. I was hired as the general manager for one publishing division for Thomas Nelson Publishers. It was their book publishing division. And at the time, Thomas Nelson Publishers was the seventh largest publisher in the U.S. But this division they gave me responsibility for was dead last in every important metric. So it had the slowest growth. It was the least profitable, worst return on assets. Divisional morale was terrible, all that stuff. So the CEO said, how long is it going to take you to turn this division around? And I didn't really have a clue, but I pulled a number out of the air and I said, I think three years. And he said, okay, that sounds reasonable. You got it. So I went back, shared the vision with the team. We rolled up our sleeves, got to work. I was, Pat, I was working 70 to 80 hours a week, every night, almost all the weekend, during vacations, the whole thing. But it finally paid off. So not in three years, but in a year and a half, we we turned that division around. We went from number 14 to number one, fastest growing, most profitable. Team morale was fantastic. I got the biggest bonus check I'd ever received, which was larger than my annual salary. So I couldn't wait to get home to share it with my wife, Gail. And I thought she would be elated. She's always been super supportive. But but when I shared it with her, I got home, walked through the door, shared it with her. And she just was a little less than her enthusiastic self. And so she looked at me and she said, we need to talk. And I mean, I just kind of had that knowing sense that this wasn't going to go well. So we walked into the den. We sat down. And she said, you know, I love you. And I appreciate so much all that you do for our family, but I got to be honest. She said, you're never home and your five daughters need you. Well, that was a gut kick and she was right. And then she said, even when you are home, you're not really here. And I thought, that's true, if I'm honest. And then she said the worst thing of all, she started to cry a little bit. And she said, honestly, I feel like a single mom. Jeez. Well, that just slew me. That hits. It killed me. Because, you know, I, I I thought I was killing it. but And I thought I'd really reached the summit in my career. But what I discovered was that it was a false summit. And and I think most entrepreneurs, most business leaders, when they get to that, that point, they're faced with what I now call the impossible choice. You can either win at work or you can succeed at life. You can't do both. Pick one. And unfortunately, Pat, you know this from dealing with so many entrepreneurs, you know, we have an entire culture today of overwork where it's esteemed, it's validated, it's held up as sort of the model. We have, you know, great entrepreneurs, phenomenal entrepreneurs like Elon Musk, you know, who touts working 100 hours a week. And if you can do that, you can bury your competition, you know, and meanwhile, he's gone through two marriages and by his own admission, you know, his sons don't even talk to him. So I just thought there had to be a third way. And so that was 20 years ago. I hired an executive coach and I got really focused on this. And it was three steps forward, two steps back, not always perfect. But I've worked hard for the last 20 years to try to find that whole work-life balance thing. Is it possible to really kill it at work? To not, to not what I call in the book, the ambition break, you know, to, to kind of pull back your ambition and settle in your professional career. But on the other hand, not sacrifice your personal priorities like your health and your family on the altar of your professional ambition. And I think it's absolutely possible. How though? I mean, that's, that's, that's obviously what we want to know. How, how do we do this? And of course, everybody's lives are different, but there's got to be principles. There's got to be things that, you know, we can start thinking about to help us sort of be able to manage both sides. And is does this mean like, 
they have to be blended together and it's just one? Or does this mean instead of saying, oh, I'll do it in three years, I'll do it in 10 years so I can be slower and then have more time for other things. But then how does that affect your goals and your ambitions? There's just so many levels and and layers here. Where do we even begin to start thinking about, okay, let's start to manage this thing we call life now? Yeah. Well, I think it starts. In fact, it's interesting because the book is subtitled Five Principles to Free Yourself from the Cult of Overwork. So it is a principle-based approach, the cult of overwork. And it is kind of a cult. I mean, it functions for many people like a religion, right? You know, it's it's something that internally validates them and, and gives them a sense of identity and a sense of purpose and importance and significance. But we've got to get that from other places. And I think that one of the, the foundational principles is to realize that life is multidimensional. It's not just work. You know, that's one spoke in the wheel. But we've got, if you just kind of layer it out, we've got our, our spiritual lives, our emotional lives, our intellectual lives, our financial lives, our physical lives, our marriages, if we're married, kids, if we've got kids, social life, our vocation, of course, that's one, one of the 10 that I list in the book. Then there's avocations, hobbies, the things that make life rich and textured, financial life. You know, all those are different dimensions of life. And really, we've we've got to be like good, balanced portfolio managers. You know, just like if you're investing your money and your financial advisor says, you know, I think we ought to put all the stock into, you know, pick something, Tesla or Apple. That's not a good plan, right? Because that doesn't really set you up for resilience if the market crashes or that particular stock crashes. Same thing is true with our life. We have to plan by taking into account all those different areas. But here's a key thing. Life balance does not mean that we give every one of those dimensions, one of those domains, the same amount of attention, focus, and time. What it means is we give them the appropriate amount of time and attention and focus. And in some seasons, that's going to look different in other seasons. But it starts by realizing that there is there is a life outside of work. And for a lot of people, that's like a new idea or something they've forgotten. Yeah, I love this idea of the appropriate amount of time, attention, effort, et cetera. And like you said, everybody's sort of pie graph, pie chart is a little bit different, right? And it reminds me all these categories that you mentioned. I'm, I can't help but think of best year ever and the full focus planner and everything else that you have. Like a lot of this stuff carries over here for sure because it's not just about setting business goals, right? It's setting avocational goals, spiritual goals, marital goals, et cetera, physical health goals. And same thing when it comes to balance or balancing. And so where does one begin to begin to understand how much is appropriate? How do we, are there exercises in the book or, or something that we can map sure. out essentially? Okay, can you, like, what, what are they like just so we can get an understanding? Yeah, let me tell you where I started and what I recommend that everybody does. And that is embrace constraints. I think, the typical American today, and it may be true all over the world, I know you've got an international audience, but constraints are seen seen as something to be avoided. You know, if I can make enough money, if I can be successful enough, I won't have any constraints at all. I can just do whatever I want, whenever I want. But constraints actually produce productivity and freedom. So what I did, and I did this in consultation with an executive coach back after I turned that division around. So this would have been about 2003. So about 17, 18 years ago now, he said to me, I want you to establish hard boundaries for when you're going to work. Now, that was a brand new idea for me because the way my day looked, 
is that if I didn't get my work done by mid-afternoon, I was like, I'd kind of look at my watch and I'd go, well, I'm not going to finish by the end of the day, but that's no problem. I'll just go home, grab a quick bite to eat with the family, and then I'll sit down with my laptop and I'll finish. And if I don't finish by the end of the day Friday, if I don't finish my work week, then I'll drag it in. I'll go to the office on Saturday morning or I'll work Sunday afternoon, or I would drag it into vacations. There were, there were absolutely no boundaries. So what he encouraged me to do, what he asked me to do is he said, is there a time that you would be willing to quit at the end of the day, every day, and literally not pick it up again until the next morning? And I said, yes, I'm willing to do that because I, I, I didn't want to pawn all this off on Gail. I didn't want to have this unbalanced marriage because I could see the trajectory of where it was headed and it wasn't good. And so I said, yeah, 6 p.m. I'll be at the office by nine and I'll quit by six. He said, okay. He said, what about the weekends? I said, I'm willing to not work the weekends. So that was another constraint and not willing to work vacations. Now here was the kicker. He said to me, he said, would you give me permission to call Gail on a regular basis? You know, not that regular, but occasionally. And just check up on you. Well, it suddenly got real. <laughs> and so I said, yes, gulp. And, and he did. He followed up with Gail and he would just have these conversations with her. And he'd said, so how's he doing? You know, and it, was, and it was like I was a recovering workaholic. But here's what happened that was amazing. Now, you know this from personal experience, because if you go on a vacation, that Friday before you leave on vacation for a week is the most productive day of the entire year. Right. Because, you you know, the, the plane's leaving. It's not going to wait for you. And so you're just like uber productive. You're laser focused. You get your work done. You don't get sidetracked by fake work or busy work or, you know, office chatter. You stay focused and you get it done. That's what happens when you have a hard boundary. Now, can I tell you another story? Please. Yeah. OK. So I want to I want to roll forward to the to the pandemic this past year. It's been a crazy year. Right. Feels like a decade, but it's only been a year. Yeah. So about the the end of March, so like the pandemic, you know, the lockdowns and all that started about the middle of March. So toward the end of March, we realized that our younger employees, which is basically all of them, young parents, and we have about 40 employees, and they were really struggling because now all of a sudden, no daycare, no childcare, kids are underfoot, they're trying to work, they got all the environmental stress of you know, the the pandemic and the economic impact and all the worry that comes from that. And so we said, okay, look, guys, as an experiment, we're going to try to work just nine to three every day. So we're going to work a six-hour workday, not an eight-hour eight workday. Now, we'd already been pretty rigorous about enforcing, you know, no email, no Slack messages, no text messages after hours or on weekends. You know, we wanted people to work about eight, eight hours a week or eight, sorry, eight hours a day. And so we said, we're going to cut it to six hours a day as an experiment for two weeks. We're not going to dock your pay. Everybody's going to get paid the exact same amount. And then we're going to see how productive we've been. So the goal is to be as productive as we've been, make better choices, do the important stuff, get it done. And then we'll ante up in a couple of weeks and see how it went. After two weeks, got together with my executive team. I said, okay, how are we doing? We can't tell any difference. You know, everything seems to be on track. No slippage, nothing. We said, okay, we went back to the team. We said, hey, good news. Experiment worked. And so we're going to roll it out for the next couple of months. And then we rolled it out through the summer. And then we got to our strategic planning session in September with the executive team. And we said, okay, let's just, we got to really be honest here. Has our productivity slipped or is it still great? And we all said, you know, it's great. And, and we were on track to beat our budget. As it turned out for 2020, we doubled 
what we had done last year in terms of profit. And our revenue was about 50% over the prior year in a pandemic with the team working most of the year, six hours a day. So we made this a permanent benefit or feature of how we do work at Michael Hyde and Company. We're just doing 30-hour work weeks. And so, you know, we just wanted to prove for ourselves that you can win at work and succeed at life, which is the title of the book. That's an amazing and courageous experiment because that kind of goes against what most people would think, which is we need more hours. But I think it's this pressure and the constraint that you're creating that forces efficiency. And you have on the other end, a 3 p.m. time where now people can be with their families, can have a lot more room for working on themselves and their mental health, which, which I'm sure is a huge part of this as well, which then can allow them to come back the next day even more excited and, and ready to sort of conquer the day until three. You know, for me, I'd love to ask you because I find that I work best with constraint. But there's many times being an entrepreneur now that I don't need to force a constraint, but I know that when, for example, when I have a deadline or a launch or the team needs something by a certain time, I'm going to get it done. And I usually wait till the very last minute because that's the time where I feel I need to get it done. But I could have done it a month earlier. How do we create this sense of, you know, a three o'clock or a five o'clock that we have to end or in some cases a deadline to finish a project when there really isn't any consequence if I don't hit that? How do you create a consequence? Well, I think if you have a team, you know, you can create the accountability. And I think it's like you've got to get a vision for what you're going to do with that non-work time. And I think this is what's missing for so many people. They don't have a vision for that. They can't imagine life without work. And I talk to entrepreneurs all the time. You probably do too. They say, I love my work. You know, for me, work is recreation. You know, I can't imagine anything better than doing more work. But it's a failure of imagination. They just don't have a vision for what lies outside of work. Like one of the things, and I don't know if you know this or not, but I, I recently, I, I wrote this daughter, first of all, this book with my oldest daughter, Megan. I made Megan the CEO of my company on January the 2nd of this year. And the reason I could get excited about that succession was because I personally got excited about what was on the other side of that succession, what was on the other side of me not being the CEO. And so that got me really excited and it made it easy to do that, that transition. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs struggle at that level too. But I think it for the non-work stuff, it's the same thing. You know, the truth is, if you have hobbies, you'll be way more interesting, way more focused when you are at work and more creative. And the, and the research backs this up. We, we cite a lot of the research in the book, but hobbies are one of the best ways to expand your thinking. Like, you know, as, as we're recording this, we're just on the other side of the Super Bowl. And I was reading about Tom Brady and just about his regimen. Have you studied this at all? I haven't, no. God, it's crazy. I mean, first of all, he has a very disciplined work day and talk about constraints. I mean, he gets up at the same time every day. He goes to bed at the same time every day. He gets nine hours sleep every day, but he's constantly involved in things like he plays a game called Brain HQ. And so this is an app. I haven't tried it yet. I want to try it. But he wants to keep his mental faculties sharp because he realizes that as a quarterback, he's got like three seconds to look downfield, identify a receiver, and make the call and get the ball to him. And that takes mental acuity. And so he wants to keep his brain sharp. So that just doesn't happen by accident. I gave a whole talk the other day about Brady. You know, success is not an accident. It's something that he has programmed in. To get back to your question, I think I think you got to get a vision for this non 
work-related stuff. So then you're, it's easier to set aside the work and go, like for me, you were talking before we got on, you know, I love bass fishing and I'm really into bass fishing right now. And I mean, I'm, I'm so serious about it that, you know, I'm hiring guides and, you know, I've got. I'm um, not surprised, dude. I'm so not surprised <laughs> by that. So I got a, a bass lure of the month club, you know, where they send me a box every month, all this stuff. But so I'm, so I'm looking for, I mean, I love my work, but I also like, I look forward to the weekends and being at the lake where I can fish. That makes perfect sense because I know a lot of people who they have a work day that ends, but it doesn't really end because there's nothing really to look forward to. They're just going to watch Netflix or, you know, eat junk food or or what have you versus also planning not just what your work day is like, but what your play day is going to be like after. And I think that's actually a very, very, so it's almost like a reward for yourself. Do, do you consider it like a reward if I finish this, then I finish that? Or is it more, I'm going to do my best at work and when that's done, no matter what, even if I did poorly, I'm still going to enjoy and have that constraint. Well, part of it is I set my work day up in a certain way. So I only have three things that I got to get done every day. So this is built into our full focus planner, but the daily big three. And so one of the things we learned, this was a couple of books back when we were doing some research, we discovered that our average client who uses a task list has 15 items on the task list before they begin the day. So 15 items that they feel like they got to get done today. Now, their master task list may be hundreds of items, but 15 for today. So most people look at that a list like that. They know they're not going to finish and they're overwhelmed, right? And so even if they get eight of the 15 done, more than half, they go to bed with seven of them left unfinished and they feel defeated. So if you bookend your days with overwhelm and defeat, how do you show up for your team? How do you show up for your family when you get home? I mean, it's just it's just like a the, the game is rigged against you. So let's just reinvent it. So if, if Pareto's law is true, you know, the 20% of the effort drives 80% of the result that works in all kinds of things, then 20% of those 15 are probably going to drive 80% of the results that you need to be generating. So obviously 20% of 15 is three. So I try to pick the three most high leverage tasks that I can do every day. Sometimes that takes me six hours. Sometimes that takes me four hours. You know, sometimes it, in two hours, I can get it knocked out. But I declare victory when I get those three done. And anything else I get done, because I can have other items on my list too. They're just not the big three. Anything else is gravy. So what that does is it means when I quit at three, I'm feeling successful. I'm feeling like I bagged the day. I got done what I needed to do. And if I do that day in, day out, every day, five days a week, you know, 52 weeks a year, excluding vacations and sabbaticals and all the rest, I can build a business doing that. What do you do at 3 p.m.? Usually I go and sit down and debrief with Gail. So I've been married for 42 years. You've met Gail. You've spent time with her. Love her. So, you know, we just sit down, have a cup of tea, just chat about the day. And then we kind of go, you know, go our separate ways till dinner. You know, she made right now she's working on a puzzle and I'm doing some reading. But then we get together. We we do enjoy watching TV together. So right now we're working through Ken. What is his name? The guy that did the Civil War and did the Vietnam one. I don't know. Anyway. But it sounds interesting. <laughs> it's on PBS. It's fantastic. Thank you for that. I want to ask you, there's a quote from Mike Tyson. Everybody has a plan to get punched in the face or punched in the mouth. And a lot of times when we create these plans and we read books like this and we're like, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to, we're going to create the, the balance sheet and, and understand our allocation for time and energy and such. And then of course, 
life happens, things happen, and it doesn't always go according to plan. And that could either be taken in as a, um, well, this didn't work for me, or just, you know, the world's against me. How do you bounce back when maybe it doesn't go according to plan, or you have an off day, and it's just feeling like this balancing is is still just a myth for us? Well, I think there is the reality of seasons. You're launching a product, you're trying to finish out that book you're writing, you're starting a new business, whatever it is, getting the graduate degree, whatever it may be. There are seasons when you go out of balance. I have no problem with that. What I do have a problem with is people drifting into that unconsciously. As long as it's conscious and you say, like I I might sit down with, with Gail like I did a few weeks ago and I was trying to get a webinar finished and it just wasn't going well. The first pass didn't work and I was gonna have to work through the weekend because the webinar was already scheduled. And so I just sat down and I said, look, we need to negotiate something. I need to work through the weekend. I don't see any other way to get it done. Are you okay with that? And she said, yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. But it didn't become a permanent feature of our lives. Here's where people get in trouble. And I did this for years. It was one emergency after another emergency, after another emergency, after another emergency. And I was convinced each one was temporary, but strung together like pearls you know, on a string. It was a way of life. It had become permanent. I, I told Gail, I, you know, as soon as I get acclimated to this new position, then I'll, I'll get back into balance and give you and the girls the time you deserve. And then somebody would quit. And I'd say, well, once I get this position filled, because right now I'm, I'm working for two, once I get this position filled, then I'll snap back into balance and I'll give you and the girls the time you deserve. But the problem is we deceive ourselves into thinking those situations are temporary. And if we're not careful, they become a way of life. They become permanent. And then we wake up and this why people wake up and they have a health crisis or you know, a marital crisis or their kids are off the rails or something else. And that's what we want to avoid. We can sustain those trips and falls as long as they're occasional. And honestly, it happens to me still, like I just shared, but, but it's okay. We're playing the long game and we're looking for the trajectory of, of where it's all going. How would you offer advice to a couple that has their work-life balance down pat they are finishing work at three and they're conversing in the night and their beautiful relationship and they want to have a kid now. And then all of a sudden, kid comes around. It's crazy. It's insane. Everything is thrown off the loop. Kid's waking up at all hours of the day. I'm getting no sleep. Everything just seems out of whack. I remember what that was like because it actually wasn't that long ago. And, you know, I got through it and I think that's one thing that's helped me is just knowing that it wasn't going to be like that forever. But what advice would you offer for those who purposefully almost get thrown for a loop in this way and, for example, have a kid? Yeah, I would say that that's just, that's just part of life. You know, be kind to yourself. Realize that it will pass. I mean, you, you face this and I face this myself, you know, going through raising five daughters, but it'll pass. And, and that's where I think we have to, to remember the, the, the best metaphor I can think of for balance. It's like walking a tightrope. You know, you're constantly out of balance and you're constantly having to adjust your weight and move to stay in balance. And the same thing is true, you know, in those high demand periods of our life where it may take a little bit more effort to stay on the tightrope and you may fall off a little more frequently, but that's okay. You know, it's it's a worthy endeavor and it's and it's worth it. And it's not gonna be forever. That's a great answer. Thank you. Now, Megan, one of your daughters, has co-written this book with you. 
I'd love to know a little bit more about how that actually worked. How do you, how did you both write the book together and also speak to what it's been like to, in fact, include your kids within your business? And was that something they were already interested in or was it like, cause that's awesome. Like I would love if, you know, my kids and I continue to work together into the future. I've seen all of your family together and just how much of a bond you have. And that's, that's, that's one of the reasons, one of the many why I admire you for what you've built there as a family. But I'd love just to have you speak to what it's been like to work with your kids and specifically with Megan. What was this book like to work, work on together? Well, it really grew out of our mutual philosophy. We both had a deep seated conviction about this. She tells her story in the book too. And when I hired her, which was now about seven years ago, she was working as the marketing director for a nonprofit school that focused on racial reconciliation here in the Franklin, Tennessee area where we live. And so she and her husband, shortly after she came to work for me, and she was just working kind of as a contractor initially. And then I wanted her to come on as the COO, but she had just adopted two kids from Uganda, both of them having special needs. And she said, dad, the only way that I'm willing to do this is that if I can work nine to three. So she was kind of the early pioneer in this. She said, because I want to be the mom who's picking up my kids after school. You know, I don't want them having to find another way home and us having to figure that out. I want to be there when they come home. And she has five kids. So I said, sure. I said, let's try it. I said, I don't, I don't really care how much time you put in the seat. I really care about the, the results. That's all. So, I mean, it's been a dream come true, honestly. You know, it's, she first started working with me. The first job she ever did with me, she was like 17, but she would go to trade shows with me when she was eight. Wow. So, you know, I just, I just took her to different business things and she kind of learned the language of business. And I taught her things like, you know, how to give a firm handshake and look the other person in the eye and use their name and be respectful and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, she's just kind of grown up around it and grown up with the philosophy and, and Gail and I are both very verbal you know, I talk about work with the family. I talk about it with at home and Gail or Megan and I have to be very careful about that now. So the other girls don't feel left out. But then my youngest daughter, Marissa, is also working in the business. She's the director of marketing for our full focus product line. So, yeah, it's good. And, you know, I think it works well in a family, in a family business, if your relationships are healthy. If your relationships are not healthy outside of work, work is only going to amplify it and make it worse. If you have good, strong, healthy relationships outside of work, then inside of work, it's not an issue. You know, we're at the point where, you know, we've worked so much together that we can practically complete one another's sentences. And, you know, she's just, I don't know. I just, I just really admire. I think she's a better leader than I am. I think she's more focused than I am. And I'm just, I'm, I'm loving this season of my life where I get to be sort of the chairman of our company and take a step back and cheer her on. That's epic. Well, congratulations to you and with you. Dalton and, and together with, with your entire family, really. I've come to really love your family and we've spent a lot of time together before and I can't wait till we can get back on the river oh, or either. the lake again very shortly here, hopefully. One thing that I know doesn't help us when it comes to balancing all these things in our lives that we need to balance is this thing that we entrepreneurs call bright light syndrome or squirrel syndrome. There's always a new opportunity. There's always a new thing to say yes to. And oftentimes we say yes because who knows if that opportunity is gonna be around uh, in the future. How do you tackle this urge for us to keep trying new things and scratching all of the itches? <laughs> well, first of all, you're speaking my language because I suffer from that same malady. 
You know, I, I have a gazillion ideas a week. But the thing that's helped me more than anything is having a really healthy team, an executive team particularly. And this is something I think you have to do as a leader. You have to create a culture where it's safe for dissent, where people can push back against your ideas and speak to you kind of almost as a peer. You know, I'm going to I'm going to reserve the final veto vote. I mean, it's my company, right? right. <laughs> but but at the same time, man, I want people to say something to me. Like I like I was just having this question with Chad Cannon, one of our our chief sales officer, and I was saying, "Chad, I I don't know about continuing to do webinars. I think we need to like do something else and here's this idea." So I presented to him a whole idea. He said, "No, I don't I don't think that's He said, "I think we need to stick to webinars. They're doing great. They're doing better than you think. You're just bored." Go back and find something else to do. Well, I love that. You know, I love that kind of pushback because it gives me perspective. And, you know, there's there's real safety in numbers, mm-hmm. right? You know, there's this, there's this Bible verse that I love. It says in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. But it's up to you as the entrepreneur, as the leader, to put together the multitude of counselors or the people that you're going to give permission to speak into your life. And so that keeps me focused. And I know that, you know, whenever I have some idea that's going to have an impact on our resources as a company, time of the team, capital, you know, all the focus, all the other things. So we work on, you know, a system where we do two week sprints. And so what the team says to me today, and I've given them permission to say this, if I come up with an idea or something I want to do, they say, oh, that sounds interesting. We'll put it in the backlog for consideration in the future. Now, I'm sure if I said to them, no, I want to do this this week, they would move heaven and earth to make it happen this week. But hopefully by now, by my age, I've got at least enough wisdom to say that probably wouldn't be good for the organization. I need to listen to the team. Right. What if you don't have a team? What if you're a solopreneur? How might you go find people to help bring that kind of perspective? Well, this is where there's a huge value. And I know you're a big proponent of this too, but masterminds, you know, having a group of peers that can hold your feet to the fire. Yes but also keep you focused on what you really want. You know, because a lot of times we choose things that in the moment we want, but they're not long-term what we want. You know, we choose comfort now, you know, over progress for later. And I like, I think Brene Brown says something like, choose discomfort now because it'll go better later. And I think that's that's exactly right. You know, there's there's sometimes we just need to have the discipline and it can come, you know, honestly, my wife, Gail, is a fantastic accountability partner. I know not everybody has that. And for some people that would not be good for their marriage, but for me, it works. You know, Gail holds me accountable. My daughters hold me accountable, but a peer group that you create for yourself, I think every entrepreneur should be very intentional about that. Getting into mastermind or creating a group for themselves of people that can, you know, just keep them focused. Thank you. We'll put some resources in these show notes specifically for masterminds that we've had in our library for a while. So thank you for queuing that up for us, Michael. And I want to ask you about the book. Where can we get the book? Who is it for? This book is for every business owner, entrepreneur, or really leader of any kind who finds themselves just working nonstop and feels like there's got to be an alternative. They're, they're tired of looking their spouse in the eyes and saying, honey, I'm sorry. I hope I can do better in the future and not feeling like they can get any traction. They just feel like they're stuck because this book presents a model for really having the double win where you don't have to sacrifice your professional ambition. I haven't, but at the same time, you're not sacrificing your health 
or your family on the altar of your ambition. But you can find the book. We've got a webpage called winandsucceedbook.com, winandsucceedbook.com. And if you go to forward slash SPI, then all you have to do is take your receipt there. We've got some cool bonuses, but one of them is called the Double Win Cheat Sheet, which is basically takes the five principles of the book and fleshes it out in an infographic so that you can pin this somewhere to remind you of what you're ultimately after, the double win. Excellent. And one more time, Amazon would be the best place for you. What would be most supportive? Yep. Amazon, if you go to the winandsucceedbook.com forward slash SPI, that'll have links to all the major retailers. But yeah, Amazon, everywhere where better books are sold. So good. Michael, thank you so much. Stick around with me because we're going to have you chat for our backstage pass listeners in just a minute. But everybody, definitely please follow and check out Michael Hyatt in the new book with Megan. And we'll have all the links in the show notes for you. Michael, thank you so much for your time today. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Pat. All right, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Michael Hyatt. Again, you can find him in his new book with his co-author and his daughter, Megan, over at winandsucceedbook.com slash SPI. All the Michael Hyatt books that I've read have been absolutely life-changing, and I think that this one could be the most life-changing. Of course, I've been a big fan of Best Year Ever, and I've taken his course every single year. He has his full focus planner. He's just doing anything and everything that he can to talk about all the aspects of life that may be a drag and to learn how to navigate that, including books about working with people in meetings to now books about having that balance that we're all looking for. So winandsucceedbook.com slash SPI. And if you want the show notes and other links and resources mentioned in this episode, you can go to smartpassiveincome.com slash session four. 75. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash session 475. Thank you so much. Looking forward to seeing you in the next episode. Make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already. And as always, take care and Team Flynn for the win. Peace out. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income podcast at smartpassiveincome.com. I'm your host, Pat Flynn. Sound design and editing by Paul Gregoris. Our senior producer is Sarah Jane Hess. Our series producer is David Grabowski, and our executive producer is Matt Gartland. The Smart Passive Income Podcast is a production of SPI Media. We'll catch you in the next session. So podcasting is obviously a big deal here at SPI, and today I'm so excited to tell you about our newest podcast. Yes, a brand new podcast called Flops. Flops is all about exploring, celebrating, and normalizing failure in the entrepreneurial journey. Every entrepreneur experiences failure at some point, so I love that we're just facing it head on here. And the show is hosted by two members of the team, Karen and Ray, and in it, they talk to entrepreneurs who have had stumbles, setbacks, and flat-out failures. These guests are honest and generous with their stories, and I think they offer hope and encouragement for all other entrepreneurs out there because we all experience it, right? We all experience failure. For example, in the first episode, Ray talks to John who got caught up in a Ponzi scheme. It's a story with twists and turns that will keep you hooked. It's a great story. I highly recommend you check it out. But one thing I love about Flops is that it doesn't dwell on the failure and it always finds a bright side. I really love it and I think you will too. So the first season of Flops has already started with new episodes dropping on Wednesdays. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. I hope you enjoy it. Webinars are one of the fastest and most effective ways to build trust with your audience and sell your product. But here's the thing, webinars are pretty hard, even if you've had some experience before. There is kind of an art, 
right, to choosing the right topic, presenting your content, pitching your offer in a way that provides value but doesn't come across as boring or salesy. So I've spent thousands of hours planning and running dozens of webinars in my business over the last several years. And in my upcoming free workshop, How to Run the Perfect Webinar, I'll teach you my process for creating an amazing webinar from start to finish. You're gonna learn the framework I've used countless times to create valuable webinars that have led to millions of dollars in earnings. Step-by-step roadmap, it's gonna be super easy. It's gonna help you remove the guesswork, teach information, and sell your product, even if you aren't great at selling something and if you've never sold something before. So all you have to do is register for the workshop. It's on April 20th. It's completely free. Smartpassiveincome.com slash webinars. Again, smartpassiveincome.com slash webinars. It's TED Talks Daily. I'm Elise Hugh. Earth Day is this Thursday, April 22nd, so we thought it would be a great time to share another lesson from our friends at TED-Ed. This is part of a video series designed to cut through the complexity around climate change and explain the science in a clear way. It's all inspired by Bill Gates' new book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. This lesson is about how a lot of the smartest solutions to reduce carbon pollution actually already exist and how they're getting stuck in the valley of death. How can we get them out of this trap? You can watch all seven lessons for free at ed.ted.com slash plan for zero. That's plan F-O-R zero, one single word. This episode is sponsored by Next, the insurance of your small business dreams. Get covered in just 10 minutes, all from your phone, and save big on policies customized for what you do. At least that's the kind of insurance Next figures you would dream about. Find out how you can save on general liability, workers' comp, commercial auto, and more. Get a quote instantly at nextinsurance.com. Next, the insurance of your small business dreams. If anyone actually dreamed about insurance. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Odoo. Odoo's suite of business apps has everything you need to run a company. Think of your smartphone with all your apps right at your fingertips. Odoo is just like that for business. But instead of an app to order takeout or tell you the weather, you have sales, inventory, accounting, and more. You name the department, we've got it covered, and they're all connected. Join the 6 million users who stopped wasting time and started getting stuff done. Go to odoo.com slash TED to start a free trial. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash TED. They've passed every test, cleared every hurdle, jumped through every hoop. Now all that remains is to unleash them on the world. But wait... What's this? Ah, yes, there's one more challenge. They must now cross the Valley of Death. All new products must pass through here before they reach the market. Many never make it out, and sometimes that's okay. If they don't work, don't fill a need, or for any number of other reasons. But inventions that could help address massive global issues also face this risk. That's because a technology's potential isn't the only factor that determines whether it will succeed. The Valley of Death is especially risky for innovations involving complex physical objects as opposed to software, and for those in highly regulated industries like medicine, building materials, and transportation. Regulations and other obstacles aren't inherently bad. They're often designed to keep people safe, but they do tend to scare off investors. And that's what traps good ideas in the Valley of Death. 
their funding dries up before they can become profitable. One of the fields where this problem is most pressing today is zero-carbon technologies. They are essential to our future because they will help us eliminate greenhouse gas emissions and stabilize our climate. But they also have features that make them particularly vulnerable in the valley of death. Let's look at why that is and how we can change it. All new technologies must go through a development phase before they can become profitable. For zero-carbon technologies, the costs of this phase are high, the timelines are long, and, in spite of the good they can do, demand is often low because they can require big changes in both infrastructure and consumer behavior. For example, electric heat pumps don't burn fossil fuels and, when you factor in savings on energy use, are cost-competitive with gas furnaces. But homeowners only change their heating and cooling systems every few decades. Direct air capture technologies, meanwhile, remove CO2 directly from the atmosphere. We need these technologies to reach our emission goals, and several of them have already been proven to work. But they're at risk of getting trapped in the valley of death because they're expensive. This creates a vicious cycle, because the best way to lower costs is by, well, practicing. Making more of a product and refining it, but high initial costs scare off investors. And without their money, companies can't continue to develop their technologies and can't ultimately decrease costs. Fortunately, there's a way to break this cycle. Governments can help close the gap when private investors won't fund technologies with such a high potential for social benefit. This isn't just theoretical. In the 1990s, functioning solar panels existed but weren't widely adopted because of their cost. To change this, Germany offered government loans to companies creating solar panels and legally obligated utility companies to buy electricity produced using renewable energy. The US and China followed suit by financing major solar panel projects. The cost of solar has dropped almost 90% since 2009, making it much easier to adopt. A similar thing happened for wind energy. During the oil crisis of the 1970s, Denmark invested in wind power and started taxing wind's fossil fuel-based competitors. Other countries took similar steps, and as more wind power was generated worldwide, the costs of this technology dropped dramatically. These success stories tell us that government initiatives work, initiatives like boosting spending on research and development, offering tax and loan incentives to startups that want to develop zero-carbon technologies and consumers who want to buy them, and putting a price on carbon emissions. We need governments to do what they did for solar and wind for many more innovations. At the end of the day, ideas and inventions alone can't solve our most daunting problems. Policies and markets have to be shaped so the most promising technologies can succeed. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Odoo. Meet Dan. Dan built a kick-ass bike company, but his old software made it impossible to keep up with demand. It took so much time just to make things work, it was sucking the life out of him. Then he found Odoo. Odoo automated his business by integrating inventory, manufacturing, accounting, and marketing. Now he can meet the demand and grow even faster with the e-commerce app. 
Thanks to Odoo, Dan doubled his revenue and can focus on what matters. Go to odoo.com slash TED to start a free trial. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash TED. This episode is made possible by 99designs by Vistaprint, the global creative platform making it easy for small business owners to create custom branding. The world-class designers are ready to bring your ideas to life. From logos and websites to product packaging and more, piece by piece, they help your business become a brand. Find the right designer for you at 99designs.com. 99designs by Vistaprint is where creativity meets possibility. PRX. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Hello, welcome to the Cricket Show. Now, joining NASA and myself today, as you can see, we have Michael Atherton and Phil Tufnell. And now I've watched, Michael Atherton has done this brilliant documentary. He has got some of the best behind-the-scenes footage that you'll ever wish to see of what looks like an extraordinary tour. The modern player would freak out. It was chaotic. This is the glamour side of drawing with the England team, is it? The trip was a little bit like wacky race. <laughs> It brought people together because it was tough on everyone. (laughs) That tour stands out in everyone's mind just for the craziness, the chaos. So I know that we always sort of big ourselves up on uh, on Sky. We sort of big up our partners and say like, "Oh, it's really good." Mike Clapton did this great thing, but this is fantastic. But how did it all come about? Well, one of our players, Dermot Reeve, he had a, a camcorder on the trip um, and he, he didn't play very much, Dermot, uh, but he went around <laughs> the whole tour with this camcorder and took a lot of behind-the-scenes footage. And I, I'd had a copy of that for a long time, for probably seven or eight years, and I'd always wanted to try and do something with it. Um, and lockdown gave us the opportunity this winter, so I spent a bit of time putting together a memory of, of what was, a, and Kat will tell you in a minute, but what was a chaotic tour, really? I mean, A, didn't go well on the field. We got uh, whitewashed, pinwashed, whatever you want to call it, India beat us 3-0. But off the field, it was a very chaotic trip as well. We landed in the middle of a, an air pilot strike. We had to go everywhere by train. A lot of, there's a virus going through the team, you know, people getting ill, changing the team left, right and centre. Lots of incidents that made it a very kind of memorable uh, tour for, for lots of wrong reasons off the field. But it was a kind of the last of the old school, one of the last of the old school tours, I suppose. And the other thing was, it's quite interesting, India at that time was just on the cusp of really profound uh, economic change. And, and this was the first tour that was on satellite television in India. It was the first tour that was sold to satellite television, I think, BCCI got something like £600,000 for the tour. And when you think now that the rights go for billions, everything that's happened in the game since can kind of be traced back to that one particular tour, which was a lot of fun to be on, even though it didn't go well, and a lot of fun to look back on. 
So if you don't remember this trip, if you're too young, that is, or you didn't get to see it, then this is what happened. So it was one-day cricket and test match cricket. It started with three ODIs. England won the second one after the first one was cancelled. So they thought they were in a good place. But in the middle there, first test, second test, third test, well, that was where it was a spin wash. India won that series 3-0. And the one-day series, incidentally, England had a 3-1 lead, but then lost the last two. So that was a pretty long trip for this team. Okay, is it one of those things that actually when you're in it, it just feels like you're in absolute chaos, but now you look back, do you have fond memories? Well, I, I do actually. And I think a lot of people, as you say, who went on the tour, sort of look back and have a chuckle. Everyone I see from that tour, we always sit down and have a beer and, and talk about it. It, it. it was just incredible. Um, we we didn't know really where we were going. Um, we didn't know how we were and, and how we were going to get there. And if when we got there, whether whether there was going to be a game on or not or anything, we just sort of went trooping around India, sort of like a little happy band, you know, with our England tracksuits on having a game of cricket. But, I mean, it was great fun. Uh, looking back, you know, I, I think Gucci said it there, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't stand for it nowadays. You know, there was pots of baked beans being cooked up in the dressing room and, uh, you know, people, people thought it had got really ill in, um, in luck now. We didn't see him for a couple of weeks. You know, Gucci actually got, got, got very ill at the start of the tour, which was sort of like a sign. Well, and of course, at the start of the tour, there was a lot of controversy. Uh, with the MCC, wasn't there about um, David Gower and everything not going? So it didn't get off to a good start, and it and it sort of didn't get any better, really. <laughs> where were you, Nat? You, you never made the trip. Well, you're not selected. Where, where, where was Nat? was hiding in Chelmsford. <laughs> oh, that's why they got absolutely annihilated. They didn't take England's best player of spin. When I looked at the side, they picked. You were a pretty good side, especially in the batting lineup. It was an odd tour, Nat. It was an odd tour because you almost had to pick a side to cover both white ball and test cricket because it was the tests were in between the white ball stuff. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, people wouldn't remember now because on a tour, you separate touring parties, don't you? You'll, you'll pick a, a squad for the test and you'll pick a squad for the white ball stuff, 50 over or T20 stuff, often two different squads for the white ball stuff as well. But back then, because there was so little money in the game, you couldn't afford to be flying players uh, in and out all the time. And as you say, the fixtures were mixed in. So we'd have a couple of ODIs. You might have a couple of tests and a few more ODIs. And you just pick one squad of 17 players. And that squad had to mix and match, really. It had to be there for both tests and ODIs. So you had people like Dermot Reeve, who was probably picked because of the six or seven ODIs in mind and somebody like Neil Fairbrother as well, even though half did play in the tests. And then you had myself and Kat, who uh, <laughs> primarily I think was test match cricketers, so much so that one of the ODIs was played in a place called Yamshire Poor, but we only we went on a small plane. The rail strike had ended by this point. A small plane was sent to Jamshed Poor, but it only had room for about 15 people. So me and Kat were seen to be the least likely to play in the ODI. We were left behind in Bangalore for three or four days. Yeah. If you look yeah. at it now... We, 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 
We were left. We were left. We were left behind for three or four days. We were like an old married couple. They, they <laughs> left us. Your tour was an amazing start, really, because the test match, the first test match was in Kolkata or Calcutta, as it was called then. And you yeah. and Embers were the main two spinners. And Ian Salisbury was kind of on the tour as a net bowler, mainly. <laughs> and we got to Calcutta. A Kolkata, and you and Embers were left out. Souls played, and we played four seamers. Um, so very much the issues that England have just had in India recently. Yeah, I, I can remember Azharuddin. I can remember Azharuddin just sort of like walking around shaking his head like that. Going, <laughs> they've played four seam. They've played four seamers. <laughs> Everyone in India was going. England, what kind of seamers are these four seamers? They're going to have to be something special because they play four seamers, and I think we've we've played four spinners in Keppel Dev. So it, it didn't start off well. You know, the selection went awry from the first Test match. But you're right about me, uh, myself, and Embers. Um, you know, we'd gone over there, and Souls, I think, had joined the party later as a bit of a net bowler to sort of like give us some practice against the likes of Anil Kumble and their leg spinners and what have you. And then um, in the team meeting, he got the nod, which, to be fair, um, didn't do much for the confidence, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and it even affected... And it, yeah, and it even affected um, it affected John, who was a very experienced cricketer and a wonderful bowler, you know. But I think it even sort of like affected him. And so I was looking at him as my sort of mentor over there, and he was having a tough time as well. So yeah, it was it was it was a bit of a weird talk. And I just have to pull you up on that batting side you mentioned there, Nas. We had a lot of great batters, but if you ever look at the averages, I think I finished fifth in the batting <laughs> averages on that. <laughs> <laughs> talking, one talking of one all, of one. those, talking of one of those batsmen on that trip, the iconic moment of yeah. Mike Gatting. I was watching at the back of the oh, uh, studio. At oh. the Gat drop, where was it? And oh. you got some footage from the dressing room of Gat trying to explain that drop at Silly Point. It was brilliant. Well, that that came in the second Test match at, at, at Chennai, and uh, Gat had been ill amongst many after a kind of infamous prawn-eating episode on the evening of the game. <laughs> and then he got on the field for about the last half hour of, must have been the first day, I suppose, and this catch came to silly point, sold rolling, Kiran Mori was batting, and it just looped up. It is, the, I think, the easiest catch that I've ever seen dropped on a, on a cricket field. But amazingly, in the dressing room afterwards, this is one of those moments that Dermot captured on his, on his camera <laughs> <laughs> a bit of uh, Mickey taking in the dressing room and Gat taking it in good humour, but it, it's great footage. Um, get Cat to talk about what happened just before that test, actually, because you missed the opening test, as you mentioned, Cat, and then we went to a place called Vishikapatna in between the first and the oh, wow. second test, where you had Sachin dropped by Richard Blakey, a, a stumping that went missing, um, and then you kind of reacted not too well afterwards. No, well, yes, that's right. Well, I'd missed the first test, and there was a sort of a, a, a warm-up 
like against an Indian B11 or whatever it was. Uh, so, well, it wasn't that much of a B11. Sassy Tendulkar was playing in it. <laughs> so it was, it was a pretty good side. And, um, and so obviously there was a bit of a sort of a, a spin-off, you know what I mean? I think it was myself, John and Saul's played, I think, or I can't quite remember. Anyway, they were looking to see who was going to, uh, you know, be the two spinners. And so, you know, there was a little bit of a, pressure on you wanted to bowl well you wanted to get in uh, to the to the to the second test side and um i was bowling pretty well and and i, and I just remember clem driver who was our um our scorer who actually i think then left because he had a heart attack i think didn't he he, he had to go home so it was all going on crikey o'reilly lovely old clem and uh, i got on very well with him and he said to me, he said, you know, Tuffers, you know, you know, this boy Tendulkar's never been stumped. And so I said, right, OK. And that just sort of stuck with me. It stuck in the head that, right, I'm going to try and, you know, I'm going to try and get this, this, this sort of wonder kid out and what have you. And then sort of like he was on about 10 or 15 and it was a pretty flat track. And I lured him down the pitch beautifully, um, sort of like with a beautifully flighty delivery just outside of stump. And, um, and it dipped and fizzed and turned <laughs> as he came down the track. And uh, he missed it. And old Dick's gone to catch it. And he, and he dropped him. And he dropped him. So I was a little bit miffed. You know, I mean, I, I perhaps had a bit of a go at Dick and sort of went, oh, blindy Dick, quite O'Reilly, like that. And I was that upset that when the umpire gave it to me, my cap, the England cap, I kicked it all the way, all the way down to fine leg. <laughs> going like jumping on it and kicking it and bashing it, to which I got fine, to which I got fine. Well, probably my, we've, we've probably my two of me, actually. <laughs> We've got a little bit of spin wash from your reaction to what, or Gucci's reaction to what happened oh, no. after that day on the field of Vishikapatnam. Come to the meeting room, you're in a bit of trouble here, boy. So I thought to myself, well, I don't really want to do that. <laughs> so I think I'm going to hide. So I went round to my mate Robin Smith's room. We had a sort of crate of Kingfisher beers. And then Gucci was knocking on all the doors up and down the corridor going, where's Tufnell? Is Tufnell with him? I was going, no, I haven't seen him. And I was hiding in Robin Smith's cupboard. Yeah, got fined for it, and so I should have done. Do you remember Andrew Wingfield Digby? The Reverend Wingfield Digby was on that trip as a kind of... <laughs> Pastoral help to the players, a shoulder to cry on. And he, he was the man who tried to put his arm around your shoulder after getting fined by Gucci, wasn't he? Well, yeah, it, it's funny about that tour, though, because if you just sort of, like, came along to watch the game, you usually ended up part of the touring squad. <laughs> 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 Saul's nipped over for a net bowl and played a couple of test matches. And, for, and, and Andy Wingfield did be nipped over as a... As, as just to watch the cricket and then sort of like, yeah, sort of, uh, you know, joined the tour to sort of try and help us all out with our sort of, you know, struggles. <laughs> <laughs> what about, you know what, I was, I always find, when I was watching, when I was watching Spinwash, I always found it amazing to see the difference between now and then. And there's a great scene in Spinwash with you in the gym cat. And it just made me laugh so much. When you think about Stokes and Butler and all these athletes that you have now, and then in Spinwash, I think we might have just seen it earlier as well, we saw this 
when you're in the gym. Yes. Well, I know. Well, listen, I, 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 I very rarely, um, I tried to avoid going to the gym, Rob, to be honest with you. Um, but then I, I was lured in there by Judge, who was, you know, great big strong fella and everything like that. And they had one of those things that's meant to get rid of the sort of the flab round your backside and your waist, and it wobbles you about like that. You know what I mean? But as I was doing it, I, I, I did actually have a fag on as I was doing it. <laughs> 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 the fact that you're in your whites as well, mate. <laughs> in my short sleeve sweater. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a chaotic time, I tell you. But I tell you, it, it, it was it was a great thing that we had such a good bunch of lads because we all mucked in, we all got stuck in. And uh, and lovely Bob Bennett as well was trying to sort it all out and all the travel and everything. We had to stick together. You know, it's as simple as that. Because if we didn't, I mean, God knows what would have happened. You know what I mean? So we just sort of, a, we just mucked in. You had a great moment, Kat, actually. After we talked about Vishy Kapatman, we went to the next test in Chennai where you played. I think you bowled 42 overs, wicketless or something. India got 560. But then you were with... Chris Lewis, at the moment that he got his maiden yeah. and best hundred, and you were with him in the middle, and he went to it with yeah. a huge stick. Lovely moments. We've got some great footage in the dressing room afterwards of Louis coming in and saying a prayer and everybody congratulating him. Yeah, well, yeah, and I think I was there when Hickey got his hundred as well. Um, so I, I, I shepherded um, two, two of the guys <laughs> to their hundreds. Uh, but yeah, no, that was a great moment because Chris was, um, you know, having a bit of a rough time as well. And I think that knock actually, he sort of said to me when we were out there, he said, "Listen, he said I've had enough of all this. You know, they keep running up bowling these little step and fetch it, and we keep nicking it and we keep back padding it." He said, "I'm just going to run down a wicket and smash them over there." smash him over the head and that's what he did and uh, he just kept sort of teeing off and he played beautifully so it was yeah it was a great uh, well honour and a pleasure to be there when Chris did it let's just talk get it a bit more serious Cat. what was it like on a tour like that when you see when you see their spinners bowling the way yeah. they did just to bring it into some kind of context as to what happened recently in India their spinners bowling mm. the way they did and then you've got to go out Tell us the challenge of an England spinner in India mentally more than anything. Well, um, yeah, it, it, it is tough because you've got to kind of put that aside and you just naturally feel that you're the the go-to guy or the go-to, you know, sort of if there's a couple of you sort of uh, bowlers who are going to win you the test match, you don't want to let anyone down, you want to... You want to bowl well. You want to you want to win for your country, and you want to win for your mates. And it's kind of down to you to do it. Um, and so when you when you see their spinners bowling well and taking wickets and and getting fivers and what have you, you sort of go right, and and, and everyone naturally goes right over to you. You've got to kind of do that for us. And so when that doesn't quite happen, um, you feel responsible. You know, you feel responsible and you feel that you've let your side down and your mates down and your country down because you haven't quite bowled as well as the opposition has. And on the back of that, I wasn't on that tour, but I was on a tour with Embers and a tour of Pakistan a year or so later. And mm. any time that anyone ever mentioned the word Sidhu 
embers would break out in a cold sweat. Oh, no. How did he get Sidhu? What was Sidhu like? Well, Sidhu, well, he, was a, he was a great player for a start off, but a very attacking opening batsman. And um, it was a game, I think that might have been in luck now as well. Um, it had gone to R5, and so the game was drawn as a, in a warm-up game. And um, it just, uh, you know, we were all thinking that we were going to shake hands and just walk off, and and that was the that was the game done. But um, but then Gucci decided that we needed a little bit more practice, and so he said, "No, we're going to we're going to claim the extra half an hour," which I think annoyed Sidhu because I think he had somewhere to go to, and so, so so he just decided to run down to every ball to Embers and smash him out of the park, and he got that sort of like. Um, you know, men- mentally, he got one on John there, and it was it was for nothing. It was for nothing. You know, we shouldn't have been there. We should have just shaken hands and walked off. But he then decided that I'm going to take Embers down, and he did. And it sort of stayed with John for the rest of the trip. Sidhu. You could give it. You were a flight bowler mainly, weren't you? Your strength was, you know, you were a flight bowler. I just wondered whether pitches that spun a bit in India... Whether you felt, you know, you, you, you had to drive the ball into the surface a bit more and just how easy it is yes. to change what is naturally instinctive mm. to you in your way of bowling. Yeah, you, you, you're spot on. In India, in India, you've got to, uh, you're right, you've got to change, which is very difficult. You've got to change your trajectory. You've got to, as you say, drive it into the pitch at pace uh, and try and trap them on the crease because they're very good at going back and knocking you there and then you toss one up, they come down and hit your good leg ball over your head for six. Um, <laughs> so uh, they're, very good at, they're very good at manipulating your line and manipulating your length. But, um, but also in those days, you must, it, it, it was difficult because if I was a bowler now and I was bowling in India, I'd just bowl at their pads. I'd just bowl quickly at their pads. And if the odd one turns yeah. on... Odd one sort of like skids on, that's what you do. But then if you hit them on the pads in those days, they were never given out. So you had to kind of toss the ball no up DRS. a little bit. To try... No, exactly, no DRS. So you had to toss the ball up a little bit to get you boys to have a little stroke at it. Otherwise, it just became, you know, otherwise you never saw the bat. And so you had to then sort of lure people and get them to play a shot at you, which they did very well. <laughs> 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 but what what was the, what was the difference then between if you were bowling at English players and Indian players then what was the difference in the way they played it? Um, we were a bit rigid. We played rigid shots, if you know what I mean. They played very sort of they'd bounce, they'd bounce at you. You know what I mean? And and you couldn't get them what I used to call half cock, which is sort of like um, done in the flight and done in the length. So you'd sort of like. English batsmen used to come forward hard or back hard like that. When they were sort of, they sort of, they rocked at you. They were sort of rocking at you and and very quickly, quick on their feet to go back and knock you away that side to your good length ball. And so you were going, hold on a minute. You know what I mean? That's my stock length. And they're playing me off the back foot and they're knocking me for ones and twos. So you go, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just sort of push it up a little bit to try and get them to come forward because that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to get edges and back pads and gloves. And then they'd see that little bit of flight, skip down the pitch, get it on the half volley and drive you through the covers and things like that. So they were very good at picking length and just knew how to deal with it. 
So what about you, Ath? I mean, you played one test out there because you got ill very early on, so you missed the early part of that trip. But what was it like facing people like Anil Kumble? They would have been quicker spin bowlers. You know, I was looking back making this this programme. The biggest thing that struck me, actually, is just how naive we were about playing in India and in the subcontinent generally compared to now. So... As I say, that test in Mumbai was my only test in India. 115 tests I played for England, played one in India. Whereas now the players go to the subcontinent every two minutes, whether it's IPL or the amount that England play there. So there's just far more knowledge now about how to play spin from a batting perspective and how to bowl spin uh, or, you know, for the seamers, for example. You watch James Anderson and you'll see him bowling cutters and slower balls Whereas when I look back at some of that footage now from 93, you've just got Devon and Daffy running up bowling as if they were bowling in England. So I just think there's much more knowledge now. You know, of that 93 touring party, I reckon there was only Gap and Gucci of the batsmen that had played test cricket in India before and probably Embers of the bowlers. And that was it. But there was very little knowledge of playing cricket test cricket in India. And I think that actually is a massive change to now. On the back of that, though, there is more knowledge now, but England fans will look at the results recently and say, well, hold on, nothing has changed. And, and then you get then you blame county cricket and you blame the structure and you blame when we play and you blame spin and spinners. Do the pair of you, Kat, do you think, well, that's always been the case? When you were watching that series from India recently, did it bring back memories and think, well, this is what it's always been like playing in India? Yeah, a, a little bit. I mean, it's almost it's almost a sort of a series in isolation when you go over to India. There's just no other other Test match series that you can sort of like rank it up against. You know, um, I agree with that that we all went over there and tried to um, tried to bowl and and bat as if we were playing in England. You're absolutely spot on. I mean, poor old Phil De Freitas, wonderful bowler for England, got loads of wickets, lovely swim and sing bowler, didn't actually get a wicket the whole of, didn't get a first-class wicket all trip. He didn't get a first-class wicket all trip. He didn't know how to then sort of like confront these conditions. And so it was it was very, 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 very difficult. Um, and, and you say about spin bowling and everything, I think it's a bit of a cop-out, actually, sort of saying, oh, spinners can't bowl. Oh, you know, I, I bowled in April and got wickets, you know. Uh, you know, so I think it's sort of like, well, you can't just have spin bowlers to bowl on spinning pitches because then you don't learn your craft. You don't learn a little bit of flight. And if you're a good enough bowler... Um, you know, you, you, you get wickets on anything. So I, I think it's a bit of a cop-out for the spinners, sort of like saying, oh, I can't bowl in April. Oh, I don't, don't pick me in April. Get out there and bowl and learn your craft. What, Kat, what was some of that? I remember reading your autobiography years ago, this was. And I remember, what was Gucci like for you as a captain? Because I remember re- you, there was something, I think you are on tour, and did you room with Wayne Larkins? And you just thought, this bloke is right up my street. You know, he was the one. Mm. That you, you know, he was a bit more like you, whereas Gucci was more of a hard taskmaster. Is that fair? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got so much respect for Gucci. I get on very well with him now. <laughs> he always says hello to me now, but I have apologised. Um, so, um, 
And, and, I, and I'd just like to take this moment to apologise to Athens and Nats, actually. If that's <laughs> sorry, sorry, Skips. I, I, I might have driven you mad a little bit, but um, I had I had, had huge respect for Graham Gooch. But I'll, I'll be honest with you, um, I never really spoke to him. I never really spoke to him. Um, he was sort of like there was this sort of change of culture and everything. He was doing a lot of, you know, was trying to drive this fitness sort of thing home in the team and what have you. But, um, you know, I, I don't really remember having too many conversations with Gucci. Obviously, we'd have a chat on the pitch about fields and what have you. But, um, you know, I, I think he, he was sort of like, he felt a little bit sort of hemmed in by the captaincy a little bit. You know what I mean? I, I never spoke to him. I'll be totally honest with you, outside of, outside of the game on tour, I probably had three or four conversations with him. But that was fine by me because he was Graham Gooch and he was up there and he was our leader and he sort of like yeah. could do anything. And we're talking about that 93 tour, you know, um, that was a huge blow when he got poorly. Um, and there again, we didn't see him for a vast amounts of that trip. He was either ill, you know, or sitting at the back of the bus throwing up. Or you know, had his head in a bucket with a towel over it, you know. So there wasn't a lot. There wasn't a lot of time to chat, you know. <laughs> but there's a great clip in Spinwash Ath, which I found hilarious, where you talk about young lions or whatever it was, and this sort of promo clip that you've done, and then you've put like Gatin, Gooch, and Embry. I mean, they must have all been over forty, almost, weren't they? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It was a very funny promo for the first test, as you say. This big young lions are going to roar. And then the photos are of Gooch, Gat, Embers. I think me and Gat actually there as well, and Devon and Louis. But the, the, the squad selection, as, as Kat touched on earlier, was very controversial, actually, because we left out Gower and Jack Russell, three of the uh, players who'd been on the South African Rebel Tour with Pitt, Gat Embers and Paul Jarvis, and they, it was their first tour back from the ban on the back of that Rebel Tour. And with the omission of Gooch, in, uh, of Gower in particular, the MCC held a kind of special general meeting where they tried to vote a, a, a vote of no cuts in the selectors through. So this was all the backdrop to the, to the start of the tour. And then David, of course, came out as a commentator for Sky um, for the three tests as well. So it was just one of those tours where everything was going on. Oh, everything went wrong. <laughs> everything went wrong. There was a lovely when moment, look, actually, when we were... Oh, we were go on, go on, go on. Vinod Cambly. Do you remember Vinod Cambly? Yeah. <clears throat> we, had the, we had a team meeting. None of us had seen Vinod Cambly before. And we didn't have any analysis or anything like that or, or apps where you can watch all these players like they do now. And talking to Paul Jarvis, I think Paul Jarvis in the team meeting said, oh, yeah, I think I've played against, um, you know, uh, Vinod Campbell in the Lancashire Leagues or anything. You know, he's pretty good, but I'll get him out. You know what I mean? I can get him out. I'll get him. And, um, and so, <clears throat> so we've gone, OK, well, we're leaving for you, Jarvis, sort of thing like that. And then anyway, I think he was on 223. And I think Gat walked past Jarv and said, can you get him out now, Jarv? Cambly's partner in crime, Sachin Tendulkar, it would have been one of your first oh. looks at him on that trip. I think he averaged 100 yeah. in three test matches. Did you know right then, the pair of you, that you were dealing with greatness? 
Well, we'd seen him get 100 at Old Trafford, actually, in 1990. That was his very first Test 100. I played in that game, so I knew he was a pretty good uh, young player. But he got 100 in Chennai in the second Test, uh, which was his first 100 in India, actually, first Test 100 in India. And there's quite a nice little bit where Dermot gets him on camcorder talking about that. And then the third Test uh, in Mumbai, Sachin, I think, got 80-odd and Cambly got... 224 in just his third test. So they put on a big partnership, um, but not as big as the, the schoolboy partnership that they put on together, which was 600 odd. And we got a little bit of him talking about that as well. Um, but there, again, drop catches. Cambly, I think, was on about 30 or 40 when he hit a big skyer off Embers in that third test up to Daffy at oh, mid on. Yeah. That went down and they ended up getting 224. So. <laughs> It's just, although, Kat, you did. You'll remember getting Sachin out, actually, in, in Mumbai. You eventually got him, didn't you, LBW, I think? Yes, I, I, I did indeed. I did indeed, with a straight one. I mean, it's funny, isn't it, <laughs> with the straight balls? I, I think I think that um, Sunil Gavaska said the most dangerous ball in India off the spin bowler is the straight one. And we didn't really sort of know anything like that when we went over there. We were all sort of, like, gauged on how much you spin it and, you know, you've got to be ripping it past the outside edge. But uh, as the boys found out um, this winter, that, that, that the straight ball is the ball that gets you out and the ball that is actually aimed in at the pads. You just you, And Monty Panesar bowled very well as well, didn't he, there? Yeah. Uh, and the likes of Swanee as well, who had that trajectory and that pace. Not really much flight and just darted it in. If you, if you played the wrong line, it hit your pad and you're given out. And if it spun, you nicked it. Is that like a natural variation, though, or do you actually mean to do that? What do you do, undercut it a bit more? How do you do it? Well, yeah, there, see, that it is a natural variation, but then also it isn't. You can then undercut it with your wrist, and you can sort of, like, mess around with the seam inside your fingers, and if it hits the seam, it spins, and if it doesn't hit the seam, it skids straight on. But, uh, you know, I was brought up to bowl, sort of like spinner, spinner, here comes the arm ball, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, um, and, and that's how, you know, that was your straight one. Nowadays, you know, the guys are messing around with seat position, uh, wrist positions, which I did a little bit, you know what I mean, and looking to hit it on the shiny side and for it to skate on. I think the way that acts up a tail bowl uh, was absolutely yeah. beautifully, you know what I mean? He had exactly the right pace, exactly the right kind of variations, and just pinging in the crease. Pinge in your crease. That's what you've got to do in, in India. Kat, just um, a final reflection on, on spin wash. The, the series was lost in Chennai. We lost 2-0. Series mm. done. One more game to play. But bizarrely, the team were presented with some mountain bikes at the end of this <laughs> And we've got a lovely bit in spin wash, which we can't show now, but it, it's, just reflect on that yeah. moment where you're riding around the the ground at the end of a beaten test series waving to the yeah. crowd well, at the end of the series, you all come out for the presentations, don't you? And we were looking a bedraggled mob by then, to be honest with you. Um, we'd, we'd all come out of the dressing room with all different shorts on and some people had already got changed or something, you know what I mean? We were all unshaven and all looking a bit gaunt and a little bit upset with life. And then uh, we're all standing there as the presentations are going on and what have you. And then all of a sudden, some little chap comes up and says, oh, well, you know, not to worry, the England team. 
I've got you all mountain bikes to take home with you, <laughs> which has per- per- perked me up a little bit. I've gone, oh, hello, I've got a little present. And, um, but then what I, you know, and so everyone's sort of standing there with their mountain bikes and the presentation and what have you. But I decided to do a little couple of laps of the ground uh, on mine, sort of like pulling wheelies and doing skids on it in front of the crowd, and they were all loving it and everything. <laughs> and uh, I can still remember Gucci's face. And, uh, and looking at me, oh, God. I, I, perhaps I got me t- My timing wasn't spot on for doing the wheelies <laughs> after we'd just been absolutely marmalised 3 0. But um, I don't think I was the only one, but it managed to come home. <clears throat> they, they managed to send the bike home, but when it came home, it was all buckled and everything. So I was absolutely disappointed because it was a nice bike. <laughs> yeah, so we, we're sort of having a bit of fun here, but I played. I think I played once against Tuffers right at the end of his career, Kent versus Middlesex, mm. and you just realised just how good a bowler he was. And you would have captained him. He's a proper left arm spinner, wasn't he? Absolutely. I I I grew up playing against Philip Tufnell. We one of our big rivalries mm. at Essex was against Middlesex. Mm. You know, Fraser brothers, Cat Sykes, people like that. And Cat was always a very naturally gifted bowler. Whatever he makes out about, you know, bowling into the pitch, you watch him here and will you watch the flight and drop he got. You know, we talk about Bisham Betty and Monty Panasar, people like that. Cat was exactly the same. Up and down, drop, drift, he had it all. He was a wonderful bowler. He probably didn't quite believe in himself as much as he should have done and you're constantly having to put your arm around him and remind him how good he was. But he was an exceptional bowler, he really was. And I tell you what, he was. I enjoyed captaining Tuffers on one of my first trips to South Africa. People were saying, "Ah, oh, you don't want to take Tufnell on tour. Tufnell's not a great tourist." Tufnell was a great tourist. He was a great bloke just to go and pick his brain. He plays the fool, but he is no fool. I tell you, he's got a very good cricket brain. Is that fair enough, Tuffers? Is that right? Did you did you did you sort of struggle at times with confidence? You didn't realise quite how good you were. Well, uh, yeah, I, I make I make Nass right there, um, mainly because just times were different. You know, times were different. You had to find your way a little bit. If you if you showed any sort of sign of looking for an arm round the shoulder, I mean, it got got better with the likes of Athers and Nassas captains and what have you. But I'm going back to back in the day, right back in the day. You know, if you showed any signs of weakness or anything, it, it was almost like a black mark against your name, you know, if you were were struggling a bit on a tour and you sort of like didn't quite know what was going on and you were looking for some advice and you'd go to the senior players, they'd almost sort of go, well, hold on a minute, he's a bit, he's a bit weak, you know, always got, you know, mentally a bit fragile and things like that. But things now have changed so much. I I, I wished, I wished so much that I was um, playing these days, you know, because these guys had all the tools at their disposability now, you know what I mean? They have everything there to make them better fielders, better batsmen and things, but also, you know, just to just to grow their own game and their own skill, you know. So, um, yeah, a little bit, um, uh, yeah, I, I was a little bit needy perhaps, but as you say, I was a good tourist, Nass. I'm glad you said that. I was Were, a good tourist. And, and, not, and, not for the, and not for the reasons, sorry, and not for the reasons that people think, Kat. You were a good tourist because at times, if I wanted to go and chat or wanted one of the youngsters to go and chat to someone who would speak honestly and not just tell you what you want to hear, 
go and see Tufnell. He might not be in his room at the moment, but go, go and see <laughs> Tufnell when he is in his room. Have a, have a rum and coke with him. Have a glass of something, and he'll tell you it's spot on. He won't mm. fluff it around. So that's why I enjoyed having you in our ranks, mate. Well, it, it was interesting um, Interesting to look back at those wickets at the Oval because the context of that, I, I was captain in that game. We were defending, I think, about 125 in the second yeah. innings there. And on a pitch that was going through the top and turning, so that pressure yeah. that Tuff has talked about before, you know, being the man to do the job, that pressure was very much on you there. And you bowled beautifully mm. that afternoon. I remember Caddy from and... And you from the other yeah. bowler. Yeah. The one, the one thing you should, the one thing you should, I always say to spin bowlers though, when they do see the wickets turning and feel the pressure, you know what I mean? Just saying, well, you know, you'd feel a lot more pressure if the wicket was flat. So go out there and just put your skills into operation, so to speak. You know what I mean? Use the pitch, use the spin, enjoy that. That's what you're here for. You know, just treat it as another game. You know, you don't want to be bowling on an absolute road when they're needing 125. You've got what you want, and that's a spinning pitch, so enjoy it, and if it comes off... So don't feel the pressure of the pitch turning. That's what does a lot of the, the young spinners nowadays. Enjoy the pitch that's turning, because um, you'll, have, you'll have plenty of roads to bowl on. <laughs> Where do you where do you where do you learn your craft though? I mean, you had such a nice action, and you could do got a bit of drop, bowl it quicker, bowl it slower. Mm. How do you learn that? Um, well, I was well. I, I used to be a left arm quick, you know. I used to come steaming in, you know. So I had a nice little sort of fluid action as well. And um, I can remember Jack Robertson uh, used to play for England. That's going back a few years now. Uh, he, he said, um, well, he said, he said, you, you know, you're quite quick, but you're not that quick. But what there isn't is there, there isn't a lot of left arm spinners. And he showed me how to spin the ball. And I sort of ran up with a fast bowler's action and then just sort of opened the doorknob, as I think he, he, he sort of told it, you know what I mean? The old way of doing it, turned the handle and it came out and it just spun. And I just thought, um, Oh, you know what I mean? That's quite nice. You know what I mean? And I don't have to run up as far. You know what I mean? And so um, I kind of, I kind of had that nice sort of fluid action. I think, um, I think that helps spin bowlers. I think if if you try to be a spin bowler from the start of your career, sort of thing, or as you as you, as you cricket, yeah. I think that you sort of are sometimes a bit jerky. You know what I mean? Because you, you you don't quite feel comfortable because you're running in slowly and that. I think sometimes it's best to sort of like almost sort of run up and bowl quickly as a youngster and then just try to turn it yeah. instead of sort of trying to be a spin bowler from the start of things because it's just your action doesn't find that natural rhythm. How would you describe your batting, Phil? <laughs> I would describe... <laughs> Uh, apprehensive. <laughs> I wouldn't say I was scared. I would say I was apprehensive of the fast bowlers. That, yeah, crikey, all right. No, what? Oh, here we go. Look. <laughs> listen, <laughs> listen. That was a good ball. <laughs> it reversed. Oh. Wow. What are you doing in line? You shouldn't be in line. Get out of line. I know. That's I, quite I, good I, for I, you. It is, it is. I, I'd given myself room, as they do now in 2020 and everything. I was in. I was, a, I was before my time with the bat, you see. These boys were given... 
<laughs> giving themselves room. But um, <laughs> we'd never seen, see, but uh, we'd never seen reverse swing. We'd never really seen Wakar Yunus. I think that was at the Oval or something. When was that? 1990s or something? Or 91 or something like that. 92. We'd never seen reverse swing. And so we'd all go out there. The, 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 um, the openers would be about 100 for one and sort of thinking, oh, good, we've got rid of the new ball and we're all playing well, you know what I mean? And I'd just be sort of plumping up my pillow and having a snooze in the dressing room. <laughs> the, ne- the, ne- the next thing, we'd, we'd be all out for 160. <laughs> and everyone was going, what's going Hold on. It should be getting easier to bat, not harder to bat. It was amazing. When, when Wazim and Wakar first hit us with the reverse swing, we were just sitting there, the batsman boys, which who I respect the batters, they've got to go out there and and face these these boys with new balls and reverse swinging balls at 90 miles an hour, I tell you. But the boys were just going, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's happening to the ball. It was amazing. Is it true? Because I can't remember who was telling me. It might have been Goffey or someone. He said that whenever it didn't matter. Whoever was bowling, all that Cat used to ask the batsman was, any wheels? Any wheels? Yeah. Even if you well, just got out for more. You might be absolutely yeah. fuming because you've just got a first baller. And as you're walking <laughs> back in, seething, Cat would just come up to you and just go, any wheels? And you just, <laughs> is that well, true, Matt? Yeah. Me? Um, well, in, in my biggest memory was the called-off test match in Jamaica where I got out. I just nicked the only ball that didn't do anything. I went in the dressing room, looked at the replay, hoping it had exploded. It hadn't. And then I looked across at Cat, who was asking everyone, what's it like out there? How fast is it? And then he went around the whole dressing room. I think there was like a mattress in the corner of the dressing room. He was almost trying to strap the mattress to his side. He was borrowing thigh pads and chest pads and everything. And I've never seen a man smile as much when that game was called off as Philip Tufnell because he didn't have to bat on it. I, I tell you something. I don't think I was the only one. As as Ash went out, you, you went, it went straight over your head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was amazing. Uh, the, the, the person who was on the field, I, I think it, it got called off just before lunch, didn't it? The per, I think Wayne Morton was the physio, and I think he was out on the field about fifteen times. The boys were just getting absolutely peppered. No, I mean the batting wasn't for me. Um, no, it was, uh, <laughs> it, it, it was it was terrifying. Yeah, it was terrifying. What about this run out? Do you remember this? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> oh dear! That was the great tale, wasn't it? Mullally, Caddick, Tufnell, Giddens in one yeah. test match of that series. Was it? Was it? <laughs> I think Cat like was nine. I think it was Caddick, Tufnell. That was Tufnell. the highest... Yes, I think I did bat nine once for England. I mean, no wonder that it didn't wag too much. You know what I mean? And, and I, I, think, I think the reason I got run out on that clip was because I was just amazed at the shot that Al Malau <laughs> I didn't, I, I didn't know where the ball had gone. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, oh dear, oh dear! But uh, it's amazing. Oh, I... It's just, 
It's amazing not how many times number 11s get run out. I don't think we're very good judges of runs, you know, and the gear doesn't quite fit right. You know what I mean? My gear never felt like I was, you know, you'd like to see Graham Hick or the boys, you boys. You, you walked out there, all your pads were like fitted nicely and the bat looked like it was an extension of your arm. You know, they used to call my bat my teddy, you know what I mean? Because I used to go <laughs> drag it behind me. Come on, Teddy. We've we've got to go out and face all the big boys bowling fast, you know. Yeah. It was great fun. I remember. I mean, if we go back to if we go forward, actually, or to to pre- the present day, when I started, mm. what mid nineties, late nineties, every county had at least two or three spinners. You know, you had two spinners in the mm. second team. Even where's English mm. spin at now for your money? Um. Well, I think we need to keep pushing for it, you know what I mean? Because it it, it, it it is a part of the game that you've got to have. And as you say, not just in India, you've got to have a decent spinner. Aside with a couple of decent spin bowlers in the ranks and perhaps one real sort of superstar spin bowler, usually wins, you know, I mean, wins games of cricket. It doesn't matter whether it's in April or green pitch. You've got to have a world-class spinner in your side to, to, to sort of become a world-class side, I think. Um and so you've got to keep um, promoting it. Um, at the moment, I've seen a couple of good young kids. I think there's that Moriarty guy, isn't there, down at Surrey, yeah. uh, you know, and, and Parkinson and what have you. You've just got to keep encouraging. They've got to be captained well. <laughs> um, you know, you've got, to, you've, got, you've got to know how to, um, you know, captain a spin bowler and encourage him with fields uh, and what have you. But um, listen, you know... <laughs> It's a cyclical kind of thing sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes you have a great load of white ball cricketers, which we've got at the moment, which is, you know, got great strength and depth. And then sometimes um, you've got a couple of really good spinners and what have you. So you've just got to keep your eye out for them and catch them early, catch them early and then coach them properly. Get them to spin the ball hard and then worry about, um, you know, the, the, the kind of the accuracy and what have you a little bit later, but you've got to go out there and spin the ball hard first up. Just going back to the going back to the original point of this sort of show and spin wash and touring life, you see how they tour now, and rightly so. Everything is played on. You please, you played in your era and had tours like the '93 tour. Uh, or would you much rather have just played in the present era where everything's laid on for you? (laughs) (laughs) I think all of us, all of us would kind of like the, the support that's around the team now and that ability to, to lean on specialist coaches or footage or all those kind of things. Um, But one of the reasons for making the program on, on the India 93 tour is that, I do look back very fondly at a tour like that, even though it was disastrous on the field, you know, we got beat 3-0. I look back at, um, at, at touring with a, a, those lads, 17 lads, who got on famously, um, you, you know, because of some of the circumstances, you know, the 18-hour train ride from Kuttak to Kolkata for the first test, you know, it, it forced it to, to bring players together and, and it's left some indelible memories, really. Memories of great or great country with a great set of lads, albeit chaotic and went badly. I look back on it very fondly with a lot of happy memories. And that was really why I thought 
the, the fact that we had some footage of it that hasn't been seen was too good an opportunity to miss to reflect on, you know, some some happy times, really. And not so happy and times. And what, what, what about you, Kat? Not so much on the touring mm. side, but as we have shown in this uh, show, you're someone that was full of character and was different. Would you have survived modern cricket and been able to show <laughs> your character? Has character been driven out of uh, I, I don't necessarily think it, it is. Um, um, I, I just would have loved. I would have loved the feeling of belonging a little bit more. Do you know what I mean? I think that when I when we played Crikey Roddy, how many boys have we played with who only played one Test match or you know uh, played two or three Test matches and then discarded and, and never ever seen again? I think that most of our, especially you know Nas and Athers. Um, you know, we played our best cricket almost for our counties. Um, yeah. And if our and that's not necessarily about the, it's not necessarily about then the, the opposition. It's about the feeling of being that sort of togetherness with a county that you're appreciated for what you do. You know what your role was, and you were believed in by your sort of you know your, your fellow county players and what have you. I never really got the feeling of that with England. Uh, if anything. I was I was a little bit disappointed when I first started playing for England, you know, because I I wanted that kind of, you know, oh right, I'm playing for England now. What's gonna what's you know what, what's that next step? I'm looking forward to sort of like seeing how it's all going to develop and how we're going to all sort of like be facing the right way and we're all going to be striving for this sort of goal and everything, playing for the country. And if anything, it kind of let me down a little bit at the start of my career because we all turned up there. There was a load, of, yeah. It's a good point, and and in a way, that's not a criticism of the people, the players. No, it's a reflection on the system as was. In that, you know, we were very much county cricketers who then were occasionally picked to play for England. You're contracted and paid for by your county, and that flip round, obviously, in two thousand two thousand and one, when when central contracts mm. came in, and that's a very important kind of change, just that feeling, therefore, that, you know, for Anderson yeah. and Cork and the guys, that was their main team, the England team, who then they occasionally went back and played for their counties. So it kind yeah. of flipped it around, um, you know, just about the time that we were all all finishing, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, that's just, <laughs> yeah. I would, I would, 30 I would, years ago, that tour of India that we're talking about, it's a long time ago now. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah the, I'm not having... I'm not, oh. I'm not having a go at the people that were there. You're, you're spot on. I would have, I would have loved a central contract just yes. to then relax. You could then just relax and enjoy your cricket and play your cricket instead of looking over your shoulder every time, going, <laughs> "Well, hold on a minute. When when's the guillotine coming down? <laughs> it, you, you, you're, you're not playing on edge. I've kind of played on edge." And fighting for everything because you just knew that you know if you if you didn't do something or you know if you didn't bowl well you were gone. So I'd have loved a central contract. Ath, we just wrap it up now. I just finished with Spimosh because I think in that it's very apparent, and you said it at the start of this show that it was very much the start for India as well. Broadcast deals were coming in; they were getting control of their cricket. And you look thirty years down the line, and you got the IPL, and India is an absolute powerhouse in cricket mm. and getting bigger. Where are we going to be in 30 years' time with India? They're going to be unbelievable, aren't they? 
Absolutely. And in a way, you can trace it back to that tour, the, the first game on satellite television, the first series that was sold to satellite television, the end of uh, Dordesham, which was the state broadcaster stranglehold over uh, cricket on television in India. And from that point onwards, you know, suddenly Sachin Tendulkar becomes an unbelievable uh, yeah. hero there and, and all the money that comes into the game and eventually, as you say, the IPL in 2008. And India's dominance is likely to continue, I would have thought. A, the population resources. B, it's just the game in or the game to challenge it. Um, and you put all that together, it'll be very tough to beat down the line. But, of course, India have to try and ensure that other countries remain strong and have the resources to challenge as well because the game demands and relies on that competitiveness around all the international teams. So, uh, on, were, 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 were we the cause for the rise of Indian cricket? <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps they could give us a few quid. <laughs> <laughs> We well, started it all. Ath, <laughs> NASA, as ever, thank you very much. And you will get to see the documentary that we've been speaking about, oh. that 93 tour, England to India. It is absolutely brilliant. It really is. Some of the behind-the-scenes footage that you would never think mm. to see is absolutely fantastic. Very funny as well. But, boys, thank you very much. Uh, but we still have cricket coming for you. We have some IPL cricket coming. Uh, the first double header is on Sunday. Royal Challengers Bangalore versus the Kolkata Knight Rider and the D-Capitals versus the Punjab Kings. So 10.50am and then 2.50pm. Sky Sports Cricket. Feel it all. Hi, it's Elise Hugh. You're listening to TED Talks Daily. Listening, and really deeply listening, is the key to communication, right? But what if listening smarter meant we could communicate beyond our own species and translate the language of marine life? Can technology crack the interspecies communications code? In his TED 2020 talk, marine biologist David Gruber lays out the work of his team at Project SETI, which is working to understand sophisticated sperm whale communication, and ideally to talk back. TED Talks Daily is brought to you by Lululemon. I am a longtime runner, and my attitude about workout clothing is I don't want to have to think about it at all. And that's why I run in Lululemon. These days, I work out a lot alone, but I prefer doing it with friends. I have such great memories of really bonding with whoever I'm running with. My friends, they trust Lululemon too. My running buddy, Rob, wears the men's Lululemon running shirt that comes in short sleeve or long, and he says it's so light, so dry, so breathable, you'll never run in another shirt again. You can get your own. Shop the fast and free shirt at lululemon.com. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Odoo. Odoo's suite of business apps has everything you need to run a company. Think of your smartphone with all your apps right at your fingertips. Odoo is just like that for business. But instead of an app to order takeout or tell you the weather, you have sales, inventory, accounting, and more. You name the department, we've got it covered, and they're all connected. Join the 6 million users who stopped wasting time and started getting stuff done. Go to odoo.com slash TED to start a free trial. 
That's O-D-O-O dot com slash TED. You are about to hear the sounds of the largest tooth predator on the planet, an animal bigger than a school bus with perhaps the most sophisticated form of communication that has ever existed. These are the sounds of the mighty sperm whale, a fellow mammal that can dive almost a mile, hold its breath for more than an hour, and lives in these amazingly complex matriarchal societies. These clicks you heard, called codas, are just a facet of what we know of their communication. We know these animals are communicating, we just don't yet know what they're saying. Project SETI aims to find out. Over the next five years, our team of AI specialists, roboticists, linguists, and marine biologists aim to use the most cutting-edge technologies to make contact with another species and hopefully communicate back. We believe that by listening deeply to nature, we can change our perspective of ourselves and reshape our relationship with all life on this planet. This, of course, seems like an impossible goal. People have been trying to make contact with other animals for hundreds of years. How could we do what others could not? Especially given that I'm sitting here on my couch in New York City in the middle of the pandemic and protests. I spent the last 20 years as a marine biologist and oceanographer, studying the ocean from all different perspectives, from microbes to sharks. I've assembled interdisciplinary teams that have built the first shark eye camera to see the world from a shark's perspective, and have collaborated with engineers to design robots so gentle that they don't even stress a jellyfish. But it wasn't until 2018, when I was on fellowship at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, that I realized that perhaps the best way to understand the ocean and its inhabitants wasn't just by seeing the world through their eyes, but by listening, by really deeply listening. I became interested in sperm whales when I heard their sounds. They sounded like they were coming from another universe, a siren song being broadcast from the darkest reaches of the sea. These weren't the typical harmonious whale songs that I'd been accustomed to. These sounded more like digital data transfer. We assembled the Future Project SETI team and began discussing how to use the most advanced technologies to communicate with whales. One of the principal conclusions was that machine learning had a really good chance of understanding the patterns of sperm whale communication. And the time to apply these technologies was now. Cracking the interspecies communication code didn't just seem possible, it almost seemed inevitable. But how can analyzing patterns help us converse with whales and other animals? Well, step one is to understand the elements of sperm whale communication. These codas you heard don't appear to be sentences as we know them, but there's clear structure in how these animals communicate. Sperm whales send codas back and forth to each other in sequences, and there are regional dialects like British and Australian accents. This is exactly why machine learning is such a powerful tool. These approaches analyze patterns in relationship and map meaning to them. Just a few years ago, scientists used machine learning to translate between two totally unknown human languages, not by using a Rosetta Stone or a dictionary, but by mapping them on patterns in higher dimensional space. But for machine learning to work effectively, it needs data. It needs lots and lots of data. 
In the past half century, marine researchers have painstakingly collected and hand annotated just a few thousand sperm whale vocalizations. But in order to learn sperm whale communication, we'll need to collect millions, if not tens of millions, of carefully annotated sperm whale vocalizations correlated with behaviors. We'll do it with non-invasive autonomous free-swimming robots, aerial aquatic drones, bottom-mounted hydrophone arrays, and more. We'll work with our close partners at the Dominica Sperm Whale Project to cover a 20-square-kilometer area that is frequented by over 25 well-known families of sperm whales. We're going to put specific focus on the interactions of mothers and calves, training our machine learning algorithms to learn whale language from the bottom up. All this data were sent through a pipeline and analyzed by the Project SETI translation team. The raw audio and context data will go through our machine learning engine, where it's going to be first sorted by structure. The linguistics team will then search for things like syntax and time displacement. For example, if we find an event where a whale was talking about something yesterday, that alone would be a major finding, something that has thus far only been shown in humans. And once we've really mastered listening, we're going to try really carefully to talk back, even on the most simplistic level. Finally, Project SETI will build an open source platform where we will make our data sets available to the public, encouraging the global community to come along on this journey for understanding. These animals could be the most intelligent beings on this planet. They have a neocortex and spindle cells, structure that in humans control higher order thoughts, emotions, memory, language, and love. And all the platforms that we develop can be cross-applied to other animals, to elephants, birds, primates, dolphins, essentially any animal. In the late 1960s, our team member, Roger Payne, discovered that whales sing. A finding that sparked the Save the Whales movement led to the end of large-scale whaling and prevented several whale species from extinction just by showing that whales sing. Imagine if we could understand what they're saying. Now is the time to open this larger dialogue. Now is the time to listen deeply and show these magical animals and each other newfound respect. Thank you. Today's episode is brought to you from Inbound 2021, hosted with love by HubSpot. They're inviting marketing, sales, and customer success professionals to learn from some of the most influential business leaders in the world October 12th through 14th during their online event. Register for free at inbound.com slash register. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Odoo. Meet Dan. Dan built a kick-ass bike company, but his old software made it impossible to keep up with demand. It took so much time just to make things work, it was sucking the life out of him. Then he found Odoo. Odoo automated his business by integrating inventory, manufacturing, accounting, and marketing. Now he can meet the demand and grow even faster with the e-commerce app. Thanks to Odoo, Dan doubled his revenue and can focus on what matters. Go to odoo.com slash TED to start a free trial. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash TED. Hey, 
everyone, this is Elise Hugh, continuing our TED Audio Collective Fridays, something a little different today, an episode from our podcast, Work Life with Adam Grant, on navigating turbulence in your career. Whether it's your job, workplace, or entire industry that's undergoing change, how do we resist the urge to fight that change and learn to be flexible instead? If you enjoy this episode, find Work Life with Adam Grant wherever you're listening to this. This episode is sponsored by Next, the insurance of your small business dreams. Get covered in just 10 minutes, all from your phone, and save big on policies customized for what you do. At least that's the kind of insurance Next figures you would dream about. Find out how you can save on general liability, workers' comp, commercial auto, and more. Get a quote instantly at nextinsurance.com. Next, the insurance of your small business dreams. If anyone actually dreamed about insurance. When I was a little, little kid, I was uh, four years old on my first airplane ride. And we got to go up front in the cockpit, you know, because you could kind of do that back then. And it was totally dark, no moon over the Atlantic Ocean. There was like a billion stars in the sky. And I went back and told my mom I wanted to be a stewardess. And my mom, to her credit, she looked at me and goes, honey, you might want to think about being a pilot. And, And there you go. That's what I wanted to do from then on. Sharon Pressler has flown lots of different kinds of airplanes since then, including fighter jets. She was the first woman in the U.S. Air Force to fly the F-16. It's just always been the coolest looking airplane. That bubble canopy and the big engine inlet. It has the highest G tolerance, which is nine times the force of gravity on the Earth, which is significant. It can do anything. Sharon's had an extraordinary career spanning more than three decades. But recently, after 14 years as a pilot with Southwest Airlines, she hit a particularly bad patch of turbulence. Her whole industry did. Yeah, I was the captain who always brought like chocolate for the flight attendants, and I'd go give them some chocolate, even if it's breakfast time. And it's okay to have chocolate for breakfast. Here you go. <laughs> and that changed my first flight after we kind of really understood what was going on with COVID. We had a bunch of those Clorox wipes, so I took those to the flight attendants instead. I'm like, hey, anybody want some Clorox wipes? The pandemic had a catastrophic impact on the airline industry, and Southwest eventually offered buyouts. I hadn't even really thought about my retirement moment yet, because I had 10 more years to fly, and I wasn't planning on leaving. But after some serious reflection, she chose to retire. There were a couple hundred that retired in the same two-week period, which is unheard of. Despite all the turbulence, Sharon knows she's lucky. She looked beyond the horizon to a new career. More on that later. But for now... Buckle up. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Captain Pressler speaking. I know it's been a little bit turbulent, especially in the economy, but it's going to smooth out. Thanks for listening with us today. I'm Adam Grant, and this is Work Life, my podcast with the TED Audio Collective. I'm an organizational psychologist. I study how to make work not suck. In this show, I take you inside the minds of fascinating people to help us rethink how we work, lead, and live. Today, navigating career turbulence. Thanks to Morgan Stanley for sponsoring this episode. You know what turbulence feels like on an airplane. You hit some nasty wind and everything is out of your control. You've probably faced that kind of turbulence in your career, too, when your job, your workplace, or your industry is changing dramatically around you, and you feel powerless to shape it. 
The current pandemic has compounded that disturbance on a massive scale. In the face of uncertainty, we often freeze up. Researchers call it a threat rigidity response. When we feel powerless to counter the threats around us, our thinking becomes constrained. We hang on for dear life, stop taking risks, and play it safe. The past year has left us all reacting to dramatic change. But psychologists find that when we encounter turbulence, instead of pushing harder against the headwinds, we're generally better off tilting our rudder and charting a new course. In other words, expanding your thinking at exactly the moment when all your instincts are telling you to lock it down tightly. I was in my 40s, and I worked in the mortgage division. When all of this mortgage business hit, and they laid off the entire division in Jacksonville. In 2009, Aaron Scott had been working for a bank in Florida for 14 years. When he lost his job during the recession, he started looking for a new job in finance. I would estimate that surely I applied for at least 200 jobs. I think I had like three interviews in that whole time. As more time passed without any callbacks, Aaron became more open to exploring other roles and for lower pay as long as they were in-state. You're fishing uh, for one particular kind of fish, but in time, man, you start casting your net a whole lot wider. Feeling dejected, Aaron finally started looking out of state, which would have meant leaving his entire family behind. My brother, my sister, my mom and dad, they're all right there. When you talk about moving to California from Florida, that's, you know, that's a desperate move. But something's, you know, something's got to give here. I couldn't find another job to save my life. Aaron spent two and a half years looking for full-time work. He had a newborn son, so his financial responsibilities were growing. And just when he thought things couldn't get any worse, his wife had a stroke. This is the most driven woman I know. And when you see that kind of person sitting in a wheelchair, I just felt the weight of the world. I had this little boy. You're thinking, my wife looks to me. My son looks to me. What am I going to do? I just finally, I went to another room and I just closed the door and I just kind of had a little pity party. What is a pity party? Well, I didn't want to say I cried, but that's what I did. With so much out of his control in that moment, Aaron found a way to take some of the control back. Instead of focusing narrowly on the mortgage industry, Aaron broadened his lens. He found a part-time job as a substitute teacher to pay the bills, which was a resourceful move. An example of what psychologists call being proactive. Be proactive can be really annoying advice. It isn't about working harder or taking the bull by the horns or whatever your nagging uncle keeps telling you to do. You're probably doing that already. It means doing what you can to change a circumstance rather than grinding against it. Identifying the ways, large or small, that you can exert some control in an out-of-control situation. It turned out that Aaron loved teaching. A few years later, he ended up pivoting it into his current career, where he's helping others learn from his earlier setback. I work at a nearby prison, Hamilton Correctional Institution. Aaron now helps people navigate one of the biggest headwinds imaginable, time in prison. What Aaron's learned about how formerly incarcerated people re-enter society has implications for adapting to all kinds of turbulence, from being downsized to being demoted to having a gap on your resume. People who have spent time in prison face major obstacles when they're trying to land a job. Employers are often hesitant to give them an opportunity. If they look you up and they find out that you were really into some bad stuff, 
sometimes that's the end of it. They're just going to pass on you. Aaron coaches his students to call out the elephant in the room. I made some very poor decisions. I've paid for that. I've made a lot of changes in my life. I would uh, really appreciate the opportunity. Why do you think it's important, Aaron, to address the elephant in the room and, and actually talk about it directly? The number one thing is you control the narrative to some degree when you do that. Controlling the narrative. This is a key strategy for being proactive in the face of career turbulence. Crafting a story about how a headwind has made you stronger or better. Research demonstrates that in the job search, ex-offenders are better off owning their mistakes than making excuses. Your headwinds may be lighter than time behind bars. Maybe you lost a job that was a bad fit, or you took time off to care for a child or a sick family member. Or maybe you have a physical or psychological disability that prospective employers wrongly judge. And although it's illegal to discriminate against people with disabilities, employers have biases. In a series of studies, people with disabilities were rated more favorably if they brought them up at the beginning of an interview, rather than waiting until the end or concealing them altogether. Psychologists find that in the face of setbacks, taking charge of the narrative doesn't just signal to others that you're in control. Forming a story can also boost your own motivation and build your confidence to overcome past struggles and move forward in the future. When Aaron was searching for a job, he decided to take this principle a step further. He started proactively asking interviewers to call out the elephant in the room, to tell him what his disadvantages were. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for allowing me to come in and, and speak with you. I'm very interested in this position. Is there anything in this interview or perhaps on my resume that might give you pause uh, about considering me for the position? Part of what I think is so clever about asking that question is, even if it doesn't get you the job today, you learn something potentially for the next interview. That's exactly right. I did learn from that interview. Sometimes what I learn, it helps me get the job that is the right job for me. Hearing advice doesn't mean you have to take it, but it does mean you can weigh it. Sometimes there's a little nugget in there that'll help you. This is another form of proactivity in the face of turbulence, seeking feedback. By asking what your limitations are and how you can improve, you don't just get to peek inside the black box of how to get that job, that connection, or that coveted project. You also gain a sense of control to address the issues that may be preventing you from getting an opportunity. But people won't always tell you what you can do better. And sometimes you can't even get your foot in the door to ask them. You know all those YouTube videos that you watch and all those things that interrupt you and jam their way into your face? I do those. Dallas McLaughlin started building websites as a teenager and taught himself how to do SEO, search engine optimization. You know, when you direct people doing Google searches to a particular website, like with those pop-up ads you're always avoiding. Dallas got so good at SEO marketing that he dropped out of music college to do it full-time. And for a few years, that's what he did. But when Dallas decided he wanted to work for a big agency, not having a formal degree became a major disadvantage. It meant nobody was looking at his resume. There's pre-screening tools and technology that just siphoned me or filtered me out. I just wasn't even passing those checks and balances. Remember, I dropped out of college to go do this. I just knew that I could do that better than anybody stepping out of a college with a communications degree. When you face a headwind, you need support. If you're like most people, your instinct is to reach out to your strong ties, the people you know well and trust to have your back. 
But research has shown that you're more likely to get a job through weak ties, your more distant acquaintances. They travel in different circles and have access to a broader pool of connections and ideas, which puts them in a better position to open up new opportunities. Sadly, the people who need those ties the most are the least likely to reach out to them. Research reveals that when their jobs are under threat, people with lower social class tend to narrow their networks, while people with higher status tend to broaden their networks. They reach beyond the inner circle, which actually turns out to be a way of changing course when the going is rough and is something we should support everyone to do. Or if you want to be really proactive, you can expand your network to include complete strangers. That's what Dallas did. He came up with a plan to recruit the recruiters into his network. He took the same SEO marketing skills he'd been using to attract customers, except now he targeted employers. First, he built a website for himself. Next, he made a list of every notable person in the Phoenix agency ecosystem. CEOs, CMOs, marketing directors, you name it. And then he made paid search ads targeting each of them. So let's say you're an executive named John Smith, and you're Googling yourself because you have nothing better to do. You type your name into Google, and the very first result that pops up says, Hey, John Smith, I'm Dallas McLaughlin. I'm a digital marketing expert, and I really want to work for your company. Click here to find out why. I basically turned the entire hiring process around, and I stopped sending resumes. Oh, this is so clever. So wait a minute. How many people actually followed up and how many people ignored it? I only targeted maybe 12 and I heard from four. The very first follow-up I got, they said, please stop doing this. I don't like it. <laughs> I was so like, they, they didn't like the fact that you were so effective in, in advertising that you were able to annoy them and, and creep them out a little? Yeah. You know, it's also me screening them out. If they don't like what I'm doing, they clearly don't understand the value in what I just did, and they're not going to be able to properly utilize me within their organization. I don't want to work there anyway. The fourth one, they were just like, come into the office. You're hired. You're in. We don't even have have a job opening. Wow. So you went from 0 for 100 to 4 out of 12 interested in at least learning more about you to 100% success rate once you got an interview. Yeah. And that was it. Dallas found a proactive way to showcase his skills specific to the field. Instead of going to the recruiters, he turned the tables and brought the recruiters to him. This kind of initiative can help you expand your network and access new opportunities too. A few years ago, I got a cold email from a web designer. She sent me a mock-up of how she thought my homepage should be redesigned. I wasn't even looking for a change, but she did such a great job that I hired her on the spot. Not everyone will have time to experiment like this, but if you can manage it, it's a promising way to proactively change the situation. There's evidence that side hustles can boost our engagement and performance in our full-time jobs. And sometimes they even become a career. Go do that thing that excites you. If you are an architect, go draw blueprints. If you're an auto mechanic, go fix everybody's cars. And if you do that long enough and you do it well enough, somebody's gonna notice. Captain Sharon Pressler could have chosen to stay in aviation, but... Once the airline industry starts furloughing, now there's a glut of pilots, right? Because everybody kind of tries to stay, take a step back and go, so I'll go back to being an instructor. Well, guess what? Everybody else is trying to go back to being an instructor. And there's just not the demand. 
The more she thought about it, the more she started to reframe the disturbance as an opportunity to take off in an entirely new direction. This whole COVID mess and the wreck that the airline industry has become right now, for me, was an unexpected opportunity. So I'm back in school. I'm getting a master's in psychology with an emphasis in coaching young adults and help them successfully transition to adulthood. And it's just something I've wanted to, I've been interested in for a while, a mentoring kind of program. And although I will miss flying at Southwest, I'm excited about it. It's a big change, but I'm excited about it. In the face of the storm confronting the airline industry, Sharon changed course, something the pandemic and recession are forcing all of us to do in varying degrees. When we're grappling with uncertainty, we tend to focus on what's right in front of us, our strong ties and our next move. But what does turbulence mean in the long term? To forecast what might happen to your future career, you can learn something from looking to the past. More on that after the break. Okay, this is going to be a different kind of ad. I play a personal role in selecting the sponsors for this podcast because they all have interesting cultures of their own. Today, we're going inside the workplace at Morgan Stanley. For many people, morning routines often include a good cup of coffee. And for the team members at Morgan Stanley's global headquarters in Times Square, the coffee comes with a special pairing. We stick together. Be kind to each other, love each other, respect each other, and everything is going to be fine to you. Meet Edith and Angelo. They run a coffee cart together in the heart of New York City. I met my wife in Brownsville, Texas. Too many years ago. Long time ago, 1975. Yeah, 75. On a typical morning, they head into the city at 2.45 a.m. to set up the coffee cart. They've spent a lifetime together in that cart. He can be all day talking. I like to talk, but not that much. Over the years, they've gotten to know their customers. He's very good in keeping track of the orders, and I am with the names. Mr. Mike, he likes hazelnut coffee, you know, large coffee, you know. That's the standard order from one of their regulars, Mike Buckenberger. If I happen to be running late and there's more than like one person waiting and I realize I don't have time, it kind of just (laughs) destroys the morning. It goes beyond them just knowing your order and having it ready for you. So like as soon as you see them, it's a huge smile. It was my favorite part about going to the New York office. No offense to my colleagues. Mike works at Morgan Stanley. When he did a stint in Hong Kong... Edith and Angelo would check in on him. I always describe them, they're the parents of the block, and they, you know, interact with you that way. They're looking out for you guys as, as kids. It does feel like that. Like all of us, Edith and Angelo's world was turned upside down in March 2020. They started to notice people wearing masks and talking about working from home. With a mask, the people come, some people with a mask and et cetera. And I say, what's going on here okay. now? People start saying, we're going to stay home to work. And then we thought that we got a problem there. I started getting worried. As New York City shut down, their entire livelihood was now in question. My colleague Eric Kane sent an email to three of us, and the subject was Edith and Angelo, and the body was, what are we going to do? In New York, street vendors were excluded from pandemic relief programs, so Mike sprang into action. He helped them set up a Venmo account, and employees from Morgan Stanley rallied together to contribute. Then they organized a virtual breakfast with Edith and Angelo to collect donations. 
And it just snowballed from there. We were very surprised. We were amazed. Like I say, we knew that they cared, but not that much. And we continue paying all our bills. And I'm telling you straight, it's amazing. It's amazing. Amazing. I found in my research that cultures of giving don't just start from the top down. They often grow from the bottom up. Morgan Stanley employees ended up raising enough money to support Edith and Angelo over the past year. But it didn't end there. They've now provided financial support to thousands of food vendors in New York City during the pandemic. For Mike and his colleagues, giving back is deeply embedded in the Morgan Stanley culture. It's always been first-class business in a first-class way, but also supporting the communities we operate in. You know, this all happened because of how we felt about them. You know, we just can't believe how much they do for us, the small people. You're not small people to them. You matter to them. At Morgan Stanley, giving back is a core value, a central part of their culture globally. They live that commitment through long-lasting partnerships, community-based delivery, and engaging their best asset, their people. Learn more at morganstanley.com slash givingback. Turbulence in an individual career is tough to navigate. But right now, literally millions of people are all struggling with a massive upheaval all at once, and one that inherently lasts a long time. Bad economic conditions make everything in our lives feel unstable and out of our control. Millions of jobs have been lost through the pandemic, and millions more are at risk. People of color, especially those in lower-paid jobs and without college degrees, have suffered the most. Research shows that job loss doesn't just create financial strain. It also increases the risk of depression, anxiety, and marital problems, and undermines our sense of control and confidence. If you haven't lost your job, you still may be feeling job insecurity, which has been linked to negative mental and physical health outcomes. There's even evidence that economic insecurity reduces our pain tolerance. But just as chaos doesn't mean we've lost all control, a moment of huge upheaval like this one doesn't mean everything is lost. Recessions can shape careers in ways that are profound and profoundly surprising. We don't yet know the outcome of this recession because we're still in it. But we can look to past recessions for wisdom to guide us through our current journey. Just ask Emily Bianchi. I would submit job after job after application after application and would hear nothing. Occasionally, I'd get an interview and I'd find out eight other people were being interviewed. And it was really nerve wracking. It took an entire year to get a full time job. In 2001, Emily had just graduated with her bachelor's degree in psychology when she lived through her first of three recessions, the dot-com bust. During the, the boom of the late 90s, there was just an incredible sense of entitlement of what's the world going to offer me? Should I start my own company? Will I be a millionaire by 25? Expectations that were insane. And you fast forward two years to my class and it just it had completely changed. You know, you go to college, you, you spend all this money, and you think when you come out, I'm going to have some options. And in that historical moment, I really didn't. That was, you know, true for many, many other people graduating in that time, and certainly true for many people graduating right now. Emily knows it's true now, because she studied it. 
As an organizational behavior professor at Emory University, Emily is one of the world's foremost experts on the psychology of recessions. Do you ever have these horrible moments, given what you study, where you say, well, you know, when bad things happen, I get good research out of it? <laughs> you know, certainly during the Great Recession, I thought that, but not now. Now I'm like, enough. Good. Okay. So you're not a bad person anymore. No, I was in graduate school, but I've, <laughs> I've reformed. Emily had a front row seat to the dot-com fallout of 2001, and she observed similar patterns in new graduates during the Great Recession of 2009. That was when the world fell apart. You could feel it everywhere. You could feel it walking around New York. And when all those folks started graduating in the class of 2009, there were so many articles about how they were just doomed. This was a generation that had completely had the rug pulled out from under them. The research that was available about recessions was ominous. A setback at the start of a career cast a long shadow. People who graduated in recessions continued to earn less a decade later. It's not only that you suffer now, but that you will also continue to suffer, at least financially, for a long time to come. But it isn't all bad news. As Emily looked around her in 2009, she saw a strange pattern. One thing that really struck me was that so many people were expressing gratitude. These people had just been dealt this really tough hand. And yet, again and again, I kept hearing people say, you know, I'm so grateful I got this job. It's not what I hoped for, but, you know, it's a place to start. And there was very little data on it, at least from a psych perspective. She was familiar with a classic study of Olympic athletes. On the podium, bronze medalists looked happier than silver medalists. The poor silver medalists were disappointed. I almost won a gold. The bronze medalists felt lucky. At least I got a medal. Emily wondered if something similar would hold for recession graduates. I found that people who graduated when the economy was doing worse, even though they were 10 or 15 or even 20 years out of those initial experiences, they were more satisfied with their current job than people who graduated in good economic times. At some level, this sounds like good news. Provided we can get reemployed, it seems like your data would suggest we're going to be happier with our jobs and more likely to appreciate them. Yeah. This is the first surprise. People who start their careers in a recession may feel less entitled to the perfect job and more grateful to be employed. I don't mean to diminish the very serious and real obstacles that people who are graduating in any recession face, but that there may be sort of this long-term silver lining. If you take your silver lining of people being more satisfied with their jobs, I worry that that's going to open the door for leaders to exploit them. That people who might have exited a completely abusive or toxic workplace will stay because they say, hey, I'm lucky to have a job. Is that a risk? Absolutely. I worry about that, too. You may be at risk of tolerating circumstances which you wouldn't tolerate if you had come of age in better economic times. And why does it last? I'm thinking about the common finding that we adapt pretty quickly to our circumstances and, and start to get used to them. So why in 10 or 15 or 20 years after the recession is over, am I still thankful for having a job? Usually when people get their first jobs, it's in this period of life called the impressionable years. Most people are beginning to forge an identity outside of their families and their communities and trying to figure out their place in the world and attitudes tend to be quite malleable during this period. What's going on in the world, whether economically, politically, culturally, tends to help shape those attitudes in ways that mirror what's happening at that moment. 
And after this critical period, attitudes don't tend to change that much. The indelible mark of the recession doesn't just affect us individually. It can have a meaningful impact on leaders and end up shaping entire organizations. It's very difficult for people who are graduating recessions to avoid kind of the humbling adversity that that type of environment presents. This brings us to a second surprise and some more long-term good news, despite the short-term headwinds. In my data, I find that people who come of age in recessions tend to be less narcissistic in terms of how they pay themselves versus how their top leaders within their company are paid. Those who come of age in recessions and then become leaders of organizations are less entitled. Knowing what it's like to struggle, these CEOs seem to care more for employees and behave less selfishly. They become proactive about taking responsibility. In one study, Emily discovered that CEOs who launched their careers in a recession were less likely to backdate their stock options to maximize their value. In other words, they were less likely to cheat, which is possibly the opposite of what you'd expect from a person who came of age while struggling. The people who tend to cheat are actually the people who are doing really well. A lot of cheating comes from entitlement or belief that somebody deserves a better outcome or that nobody will notice and I'll get away with it. So when you look into your crystal ball then... I don't have one of those. <laughs> I, I beg to differ based on your findings. In 20 or 30 years, when people who are just starting out their career become CEOs, does that mean we're going to see more servant leaders, more givers than takers? I would certainly hope so, based on what we've seen in the past. So there are some reasons for optimism in the long run. The chaos we live through can make people stronger and better in a very real way. In terms of how they mitigate the uncertainty associated with bad economic times. One, I think, very positive way is through connecting with other people. This tendency for connectivity brings us to one last surprise from Emily's studies. During moments of uncertainty, but especially economic uncertainty, we tend to rethink our relationships with others. We become less individualistic and more civically minded. Emily has found an ingenious way to measure that. Through pop music. When we're struggling through bad economic times, we're drawn to different lyrics. In popular American music, you're more likely to see first-person plural pronouns, like we, us, ours. Whereas in really good economic times, you see a lot of first-person um, pronouns, like me, mine, I. When you think of what's often called the greatest generation, it's a generation that came of age either in the Great Depression or in World War II. It's been argued again and again that this is the most civically minded generation. I do think we will see that going forward in the current generation. Another way Emily measured individualism was by looking at Social Security data to see what parents named their kids during good and bad economic times. Emily found that when the economy is doing well, parents are more likely to give their kids unique names. I'm looking at you, Blue Ivy. When the economy is struggling, parents choose from a smaller set of more common names, which are often biblical names. It used to be um, in the 1950s, one out of 15 boys would receive the most common name. Fast forward to 2013, and now it's one out of 75 boys receive the most common name of their birth year. If you take this idea of 
increasing you know, communal orientation, decreasing individualism seriously. Would you also anticipate that we're going to see more caring and more supportive work relationships in the next couple of decades? The findings that I have looked at suggest that yes, right? To the extent that people are less narcissistic, they would also manifest in positive ways in the interpersonal level. We can all agree that recessions are terrible in the short term for so many reasons. But in the long term, having experienced their own struggles, leaders in the future may be less entitled, more honest, and more caring toward employees. And in the meantime, we all may be more community-focused. But during a recession, there's a darker side to this. It really depends on who your community is. There tends to be greater fondness for people within one's in-group. And often, not always, but often that comes at the expense of how people perceive and treat people who are not a part of their in-group. Xenophobia is higher. Treatment of immigrants is worse. All these different manifestations of, of prejudice. Evidence shows that recessions have unequal effects along racial lines. You know the wage gap between black and white workers? Well, Emily found that it grows during recessions. She also discovered that recessions change people's attitudes about race. Her research shows that white people are more likely to report that inequality between races is natural and normal. In the wake of a recession, we need to understand how to overcome this in-group bias and broaden people's circles of concern, to motivate them to care about helping those who have been most disadvantaged. Dismantling these biases is so important that we'll be devoting two episodes to it this season. Stay tuned. When you hit turbulence, it can be hard to see the way forward. It can help to look backward. What we see when we do that is that the lessons we learn in these hard times will shape our jobs and our cultures for the long haul. Some of those effects are negative, and we have to be vigilant to counteract them. Some of them are surprisingly positive. A glimmer of light up ahead. We also see that in the bumpiest or most chaotic moments, our connections with each other are more important than ever. And it's up to us to be proactive about not only reaching out to our networks, but expanding them. If we're thoughtful about it, we have the opportunity to stick the landing, to come through turbulence more open, more honest, and more connected than before. Work Life is hosted by me, Adam Grant. The show is produced by Ted with Transmitter Media. Our team includes Colin Helms, Greta Cohn, Dan O'Donnell, Consanza Gallardo, Grace Rubenstein, Michelle Quinn, Ban Ban Cheng, and Anna Phelan. This episode was produced by Joanne DeLuna. Our show is mixed by Rick Kwan. Our fact checker is Paul Durbin. Original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. Ad stories produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Special thanks to our sponsors LinkedIn, Logitech, Morgan Stanley, SAP, and Verizon. For their research, thanks to teams including Barry Staw on Threat Rigidity, Sharon Parker on Proactivity, Connie Weinberg on The Job Search, Brent Lyons on Disclosing Stigmatized Identities, Jamie Pennebaker on Forming a Story, Sue Ashford on Proactive Feedback Seeking and Job Insecurity, Mark Granovetter on Weak Ties, Tanya Menon on Narrowing versus Broadening Networks, 
Hudson Sessions on side hustles, Rick Price on job loss, and Lisa Kahn on how recessions affect careers. Today's episode is brought to you from Inbound 2021, hosted with love by HubSpot. They're inviting marketing, sales, and customer success professionals to learn from some of the most influential business leaders in the world, October 12th through 14th during their online event. Register for free at inbound.com slash register. PRX. Keep listening to our weekly episodes to find out more. Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. We have a full full house here. We're very lucky to have uh, Scott Belsky, who many of you many of you know. Uh, well, and many you know, and uh, and it needs no introduction. But I'll just for for anyone who, who may not be as familiar, is a, a, a prolific uh, angel investor, uh, chief product officer at Adobe, uh, founder of of Behance, and also spent uh, uh, spent some time at, at Benchmark as a as a venture partner for for a few years. So Scott, by by way of introduction, well, why don't you sort of introduce? the beginnings of your angel investment journey of your angel journey. Some people are, are pros here. Some people are, are starting out. You, you invested in Pinterest, you invested in Uber, you invested in, in a bunch of others. What, what were your first few years of angel investing like? And, and what was your uh, philosophy and, and learning curve in, in doing it? Well, it's really, you know, from a, from a product and founder perspective. So I started Behance back in 2005. We were bootstrapped for about five or so years. And we got venture backing at that point. And, um, and then after two more years, seven years in, that's when we were acquired by Adobe. But in that last two years, you know, after five years of doing this, I had met, you know, a group of other product-oriented founders. And then at the time, you know, I had a really good grasp of the design community and the design world, given the role that Behance was playing. And so companies that were either design-driven, their product was design-driven, or they had a design founder, or they were looking to hire great designers um, I would try to help my friends out. Ben Silberman uh, asked me to be a, um, a product advisor for Pinterest when he was just pivoting from something else into what became known as Pinterest. And uh, and so I, I joined him as a product advisor. And then when he was raising his seed round, which back then he was a $5 million valuation, but which now seems small. But back then, you know, for this small little image-based bookmarking site in the world of Delicious and all these other sites... I was like, I don't know, should I do this? You know, should I put money in? I shouldn't be investing in anything. I'm the founder and I can barely, you know, make my own salary. But um, that was my first angel investment and started working with him and the team on, uh, on, on product stuff and, you know, right out of the gate. And, uh, you know, and then I then started in the New York ecosystem coming across other entrepreneurs that were friends and helping them either as a product advisor or investor Another strange, crazy story is that my uh, my third investment ever was um, the second one didn't work out, so we won't talk about that one. The third one, 
I had Behance had a big partnership with this company called StumbleUpon, which most of us remember. And Garrett Camp had just bought StumbleUpon back from eBay. He had sold it to eBay and then he had bought it back. And Behance and StumbleUpon were doing a big partnership together. And he was in my office, which was also my apartment back then in 2000. And I forget the date, but you know, it was after Pinterest. And he literally whips out a sketch pad and is showing me this like side project he's working on to like help summon a car. And he's like, do you want to, do you want to help? And I'm like, dude, you just bought back your company from eBay and you should be focused and I should be focused. (laughs) And then, um, you know, but then I became uh, just someone who would look at his prototypes and help with the early brand of what became Uber. And so that was, you know, that was the process of getting involved with, with Uber in the early days. So I think that my lesson learned has been, I, at least for me, I haven't focused on looking for investments for the sake of it as much as like following my product compass, you know, and the people and the problems and the products that I have affinity towards has been like a good guiding force for me. If you, uh, if you didn't invest in Pinterest or Uber, you would have had the biggest FOMO uh, ever. Oh yeah. Right. I mean, you know, having been able to be there and not, you know, I wrote a very, very, very tiny check into Uber because, again, I had no idea what the hell was going on. So, um, but I, but not complaining. And you know, and since then, it's been just great to um, to work with a ton of different design-oriented founders or products and companies. And now, you know, probably almost a hundred companies at this point, and then different plays. You know, throughout. Sometimes it was direct consumer play. You know, Neil 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 Blumenthal and Dave were you know they were uh, Warby Parker, but they were New York City entrepreneurs. You know, so met them through this ecosystem here. And, you know, and then early AI companies, this company called HyperScience, another New York company. So New York has always been, you know, one area where I try to, you know, be especially tuned in. But at this point, it's obviously, uh, you know, both coasts and beyond. Yeah. So you, you've been doing this for, for nearly a decade, maybe more. How would you say you've evolved as you sort of professionalized as an, as an investor a bit, the biggest sort of like, principles you picked up or as you sort of think about your non-obvious, you know, operating principles as a, as an angel uh, today, uh, w- w- what comes to mind? Well, I think a couple litmus tests, if you will, you know, one to me is with people that I hire and work with or people that I invest in is just that idea of every conversation being a, almost a step function more interesting than the one before it, as opposed to having the same conversation twice. I like to try to talk to a founder more than once if I can, because that tells me something very quickly. I mean, Periscope was a good example of that. Like Kayvon and Joe, every time we started to jam about what you know they were calling something else before Bounty App was a step function more interesting than the one before it. And then and the chemistry just felt so good. I was like, I want to be a part of this. I, I feel like that's such a good signal. Also, you know, seeing how someone thinks through product, you know, is great. You know, it's one thing to see a prototype and click through yourself, but to be walked through and ask questions about why certain decisions were made, I feel like you can you can unearth so much. And I do believe that every product is ultimately a representation of its team. And I think that even you know, in my day job now at Adobe, where there's you know at least a dozen or so products in my organization, the products themselves almost look like their team. And I don't know if it's like we see a dog and it looks like its owner and we like play that psychological association game that may be bullshit. But I actually do believe that, you know, a a product is a manifestation of its team. And so if you can get to know the product alongside the team at the same time, you start to draw some of those connections. Yeah. 
one thing that some people are are are, are thinking here is is where exactly do they fit in as an investor? Are, you know, are they an operator who angel invests on the side? Do they join or start a, a, a firm in, in some capacity? You've explored that in, in different contexts with your your role at Benchmark, you, you as an angel. Um, you could have obviously started your, your own fund. Um, how have you thought about frameworks for thinking about what's the best fit for you and any advice you give for other people about what, what is what it makes the most sense in terms of what capacity to become an investor? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, let's talk about it in two different ways. So let's talk about first in terms of the market, where the market's going and what founders want. And then let's talk about it in terms of you know us as individuals, you know, and finding our kind of power lane or power alley, so to speak, in terms of what we're especially good at. But in the market, founders want to be surrounded by people that have empathy for what they're going through. They want to be surrounded by people that are maybe less generalists and more super superpowers in specific areas. You know, as a founder, there's so many moments where you're lost, where you're facing uncertainty or ambiguity, and you want to have someone specifically who you can contact to walk you through it. And as a founder myself, you know, folks like Chris Dixon, you know, he was he helped me walk through my cap chart the morning, the night before the acquisition, and like and see like what equity I might want to shift in various places to make certain people whole. And he had done that himself. And so, you know, that, that I think that people want to look for that. And, you know, these days when you have all these like very large funds that can essentially be valuation agnostic and just get in early as an option for themselves to get in later. And, um, and also just the plethora of new funds. I mean, there's just so much capital in the ecosystem and anyone who doesn't know better will basically invest in anything that has all the right buzzwords. So, I think that being a an operator investor, you know, is a competitive advantage these days. You know, I've seen it time and time again where a round will be full, but there's always space for that operator with a background in a specific area that's going to be crucial for that company to succeed. So I think that, you know, when I see my you know, friends who are great operators suddenly say, oh, I have to join a fund or I have to start a fund. In some ways, I almost see them as taking themselves off of the market of what they could have been competitive in. You know, had they just kind of stayed investing in their own name and in very small checks, maybe they would have gotten every piece of deal flow from their community and they would have been able to invest in anything they wanted. And now suddenly they're just making it more competitive for themselves. So for those of you that are operators or are thinking of, you know, investing in your own name, you know, in, in a spearfishing like manner using your superpower, that's where the greatest opportunity is right now in this space. As for individuals, you know, and what we what we love doing, you know, I, I, I mean, one thing I learned at Benchmark is I don't believe that venture capital is like a very scalable uh, offering. I think that the best firms are boutiques. You know, they're they're non they're not efficient in certain ways on purpose. Um, as soon as you have someone making the agenda for you in partner meetings, all bets are off as far as I'm concerned because then you're not leveraging the forces of natural selection to determine what you should actually be talking with with your partners. As soon as you're dealing with, you know, operations and talking about the firm's website and all these other mechanics, all bets are off in my view because you're not focusing enough on what actually moves the needle, which is finding that one great deal and then making that founder succeed. You know, so I think that as individuals, we have to kind of find, uh, you know, the construct that works works for us. Um, and the, you know, the, the superpower that we bring to the market that no one else has. And also, you know, last thing I would just say is curiosity. It's, you know, whenever I'm not sure whether to work with someone or whether to invest in something or whatever, it's just like, 
what am I insanely curious about? And if it's something I'm really curious about, it typically ends up being a good learning experience, if nothing more. And one of the things that I think you learned from our conversation, or I got, that I gathered from our conversations, is that you're more excited about, or you gravitate more towards the pre-momentum than the post-momentum. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, listen, I mean, I, I've invested in Series A, Series B before, and typically I see it as paying the price for missing it earlier. But also it's just something that I, you know, if it's something I really love or it's a team I really love, I'll do it. But I, you know, I like, I, I like thinking about the potential of a product and the potential of a team. Whereas I think, you know, great investors, probably way better than I, are more focused on the present, you know, and what's the current state of the team and the current state of the product. And they're probably making a risk adjusted better, better bet, you know, than I am. But I just love, you know, that early stage. I think it's so fun. And, and how about, you know, because you've also, you've incubated a company, you've been an executive company, you've founded a company. How have you sort of come around just more broadly? Because uh, a lot of people here are also just thinking about, you know, long-term what they want to do and where they best fit in, where you best fit in and, and what, why being executive Adobe relative to all the other things you could be doing was is the right Yeah. Thing. You know, it's, it took me years to figure this out and I learned the hard way. Behance was a seven-year journey, right? And then three years at Adobe leading Behance, but also leading a lot of the transition from creative cloud, from software to service. And I had a great time, but everyone was telling me, dude, you should be an investor. You should be an investor. You should be an investor. And then when you have the opportunity to join a firm like Benchmark as a general partner, it's like, I should probably do this. And then immediately, you know, three to six weeks later, I felt like I hung up my spurs. I felt like uh, I was listening to like Johnny Cash music, you know, and it was just not a good sign because I was, in my 30s, and I just felt like I wasn't using my superpowers anymore. So what I realized is that actually having a big team and operating was always stressful. And then as soon as I was no longer doing it, I realized how much of me was you know, engaged by that. I missed it. So I come to believe that happiness is feeling fully utilized. And to me, that means you know, 30% of me feeling utilized with friendships and family you know, 30% of me feeling utilized with the investing stuff and, and being able to help teams build products and build businesses. And, you know, the rest of me just building products myself, building teams. I'm not doing a time breakdown. I'm doing more of a happiness breakdown. You know, feeling fully utilized means using all these muscles in unison. And so that's why, you know, some people might say, oh, that's a little weird of a hybrid, you know, doing this investing thing and also, you know, leading products at a big company, you know, why would you be doing that? But for some reason, at the end of the day, it makes me feel really fulfilled. What advice um, do you have for founders who, or, or people who want to incubate companies and, and, be, and be chairman of them, but, but aren't the sort of day-to-day -day CEO based on your, your experience doing that a, a few years ago? Yep. Yeah, sure. And, you know, I studied this, I've tried it and I thought a lot about it. I'll tell you, you know, watching, watching Garrett with Uber taught me a few things. Number one, is you have to be obscenely generous in order to be a co-founder who's not operating and a board chairman in his case, um, and truly empower a team to succeed. And I've seen a few examples of this fail where someone says, oh no, I'm going to retain this much equity because it was my idea. And, uh, and then the company breaks down, you know, in most cases with, um, with Garrett it was for him all about setting up the right people to succeed. And he knew that having much less ownership of a business 
that was worth billions would obviously be more valuable than half ownership or whatever of something that was you know worth nothing. So I think that you have to have that attitude of knowing that you know ideas are worth nothing really, and um, you can start you can have an idea, and then if you build a founding team around it, you know be be extra generous, and so there's never a doubt that they have that it's theirs and not yours, you know, and then do everything you can to empower and help them succeed. And, um, you know, that's what I would try to do in that scenario. Incubations are tough because listen, these are living, breathing entities. Companies are like children. They need to feel like they have devoted parents. You know, they need to feel, they need to get all the nourishment and, and, you know, and otherwise they'll get, they'll be screwed up. Yeah. I've heard from this, um, someone, I'm actually forgetting his name. He co-founded Long Game with Lindsay Holden, he, he's co-founded a few companies. He's a professor at Stanford. One of his advice is basically that you have to have like one core value prop that's very hard to hard to replace and, and sort of justifies. And so maybe it's, you could bring a lot of capital in the case of like Josh Kushner or Keith Raboy, or maybe it's, in his case, he has, you know, relationships with with uh, with banks that mm. uh, merit sort of that, that equity because he's getting the first customers and stuff like that. Yeah, it's interesting. Going back to your point around um, evaluating the market. I'm curious to get your sense for how you think that's going to change in the years to come. Like, for example, do you see the future as like, you know, rounds being put together? It's like one lead firm and then it's all, you know, operator angels. And like, is it, is it sort of a barbell? Are you long in the solo capitalist trend? Or how, how do you sort of think things evolve in the next few years? Well, you know, there's a couple of companies that I've been a part of recently. They're rounds that are second time entrepreneurs who are really well respected and known. And they just did, they just raised their seed round from individuals only. And uh, and usually one individual with a larger check set the terms and then everyone else just followed. And then for their series A, they went to meet with a lot of great firms. They got uh, a term sheet from Sequoia and they met a few others and they decided, you know what, we're just going to do another inside round with the exact same people. And so they came back to us and said, do you want to do a round at a much higher valuation? But others, you know, uh, were really like there were a number of people that still were able to write very big checks. And and so, you know, we continue to do it that way. And I think that you're seeing more and more of that because if you're an experienced entrepreneur, you, you know, not to say that firms don't add value, they do, but if you can go to a hand selected group of people who know you and you know them and who are capable of writing larger checks and you don't have to bring on a board member um, if you don't want to, you have a little more authority I mean, maybe, maybe people will just do that. And so there'll be a positive selection bias, you know, for some of the best, best companies potentially. And so I do think that being in the position where you can do that, I mean, in this case, funds were basically not even allowed to participate. So you had to almost be an individual angel or a, you know, super small solo capitalist type fund to, to really, I guess, you know, in their eyes, at least be part of this. That's an extreme, and I'm not suggesting that that's the norm, but I do I do agree with what you kind of postulated, which is that you'll have more situations where one firm leads, and then they'll just round it out with a lot of value-added individuals. And and if you're the, the, the folks that are going to suffer are the people who don't have a superpower or maybe just from the finance world who have a venture capital fund with money, you know, and, and I call that harmless capital. You know, there's a lot of harmless capital in the system right now. It's just people who will write a check and just, you know, stay out of your way. You know, that, there'll be a negative selection bias for that for those dollars. How do you think about being a thematic investor or, or going deep on spaces or, or getting uh, you know, up to speed on, on certain things? H- how do you approach that? 
And are there certain spaces you're excited about right now? Yeah, yeah, there are. And I mean, I think I go from, I go on whims, you know, where I'll get super excited about a certain concept. And uh, I mean, right now I'm really interested in this vertically integrated services idea where you essentially, um, for small businesses, so basically you go out there, you train people to be repair people of, uh, you know, to repair certain types of appliances and then you set them up as a business in their geography to repair those appliances and you generate the leads for them and you process payments for them and you do marketing and SEO for them and you do everything for them. So it's almost like the reverse franchise model where people don't come to you, but you go to them and you basically build this. And in exchange, you take 7% of their revenue forever. And I've seen this now in a few different spaces and it's really interesting to me. You know, I'm really interested in this SMB, very like micro SMB trend right now. One company I invest in called Cashdrop. It's almost like a Shopify, but for super, super simple, like think taco trucks and that kind of thing. And, you know, just cleaning up the space because they have some very novel, you know, no fee ways of doing this that are really interesting. So there are these little themes that I'll pick up on and I'll get obsessed with and I'll try to meet, you know, the rest of the players in the space. But I try not to ever define myself by a thesis because the thesis is always changing. Yeah. And, you know, and they get old quickly. We, the company you incubated was it was it was in a similar space to the the spaces that you're exploring right now, right? So you've been curious about this space for a while. Can you talk about? The- yeah, sure. So this is also you know one of those big things that did not work out. So prefer, so prefer the idea of prefer was was to help people get referrals for every service professional in their lives from their friends, and so the idea being that you will trust if I tell you there's a chef or there's a hairstylist or there's a massage therapist or there's any service provider actually that you would ever need that you might find online with 4.2 stars from strangers, you'll actually potentially irrationally always trust what I have to say over whatever the average online says. We just are, as human behavior, we just always go to friends for the referrals for everything. And when you go to any of the moms groups on Facebook, for example, it's a constant exchange of, oh, I need a babysitter or I need a tutor. I need a this, I need a that, toilet trainer, you know, whatever the case is. It's, it's all a referral frenzy. But the thing is, is it's not, there's no structured product that helps us know the services that our friends use. And so the idea being that if you showed me all of your service providers and I showed you all of mine compounded by 50, you know, then it actually we have a full index of every service provider fully vetted by our friends that would fuel, you know, fuel our lives and our needs for services. And so what ended up happening together, I put together a team, you know, I was uh, just a board member and, um, but I put together a great team and the team explored this. We launched the first version of the product that actually was working extremely well, but had no growth mechanics other than like the manual old school growing it on with a field game. And so uh, the team was also, you know, our, our CEO was from Facebook and from the growth mindset, you know, and so it was very important to the team that they found that kind of like, you know, viral growth mechanic from within the product. So you wouldn't rely on a field, uh, on, a, on a ground team. And so, um, you know, there were like three or four different pivots off of that. You know, the team, I, I've, I've shared this publicly and, you know, the team and I talk about it, uh, still quite a bit. You know, my view is that maybe we should have 
kept at that first iteration more because it was actually people still come up to me and are like, I wish I had that back, but it wasn't growing. Like, I wonder if we should have rather than pivoting off of it, just like kept tweaking the, you know, the mechanics for get it to become more shareable. Yeah, it's just hard to know when to when, when to change and when to keep going. Your, your your first example of sort of the reverse, what do you call it? Reverse what? Reverse franchise model. It's almost like uh, YC for the trades or something. Like, are, are you, so you see it as, as education and then, you know, sort of job, job placement or, or, or lead generation? Well, there are a few ways of going about it. I mean, another team that I met is basically going to, you know, like painters that are out there that have their own mom and pop painting shops, right? And these painters and geographies all across the country and presumably the world, you know, these painters, they do, you know, they may, they may make 150 to 300, maybe a million dollars a year for their like painting business. Um, but they have no payments technology. They have no, they don't know what SEO or SEM even means. You know, they definitely don't have a social media presence. They don't have any reminders, CRM management tools for their customer base, no referral engines, like nothing. Right. And so if you go to one of these companies and you say, here's the deal. I'm going to turn you into one of my friend, one of my franchises. So basically I'm going to reverse. You're already, you're already operating company. I'm going to turn you into a franchise of my like parent name. And so instead of Bob's painting, it's now like X, Y, Z Bob's painting. And in exchange, I'm going to do all of this back end for you. I'm going to fuel your business. And I'm going to show you that you're going to actually grow 20 to 25% based on what I'm going to do for you. And I'm going to take 7% revenue going forward then it's a good value proposition for everyone. And so that's, you know, that's one model. Another model is to actually go and find these people and train them up and then basically light them up on your platform as a business from day one, but you having like trained them to do the craft as opposed to them having already done it. One company we co-invested in together uh, a bunch of years ago is, is, was Greg Eisenberg's company, Islands, which is yes. a messaging company. Um, maybe it was too, too ahead of its time. How, how have you sort of um, thought about uh, consumer social o- over time and, and where are we at now and uh, how are you viewing it as an investor? Well, you know, consumer social is probably one of those forever themes for me just because built community building and social is a big part of, you know, my interest area. And, you know, there are always quirky ideas at first, as you know, and there are always an understanding of a user's psychology and like what they're trying to do and, you know, that's what I love about social products is there's so many nuances, like ego analytics. You know, how does someone feel better about themselves proactively from the product as a result of using the product? And all these other principles that I think are fascinating. You know, they're also, of course, notoriously and increasingly hard to build just because, A, the growth hacks that worked for the earlier versions of them are no longer either acceptable or legal. Um, number two is... Um, is the walled gardens obviously are really powerful now and Facebook has you know, become very like dominant in the way that it flexes its muscle in this space. And, uh, you know, but I actually think that new mediums are a new opportunity. You know, I'm looking at some social stuff in the AR space. I'm looking at uh, audio social stuff. I'm also, uh, you know, thinking about what's kind of the next, you know, personal human need that will be fulfilled by that technology. Yeah, there's, there's you know, a great social product when it comes out. You, you can't imagine life before it, whether it was Twitter or even not even Clubhouse. Not you can't imagine life before it, but just it's so elegant. It work, works so well. A couple of spaces within that that I've, I've been excited about to, to look for is one is 
like is there some version of a discord for sports uh yeah sports fans are just so you know engaged they they're willing to pay as, as sort of the athletic has shown and is there an experience i don't know if it's audio sort of play-by-play around the game or or, or or whatever it is but it seems like that's something interesting and then I, i've always wondered if there was something that could be done off of re- receipts um mm-hmm. or this new data source in general whether it's email or or receipts that you could create a you know that you could create an identity around you know the things you support the things you almost Venmo like but in like a different you know more more scaled context and more yeah. center of gravity. Yeah, I think Venmo could have done a lot more with the feed, but also imagine Venmo if you also had a personal profile that was like your yep. your angelist profile, but it's like here's the restaurant I support or here's the yeah. causes I believe in or, or or yeah. I mean, one of the things I was excited about with with, um, with Greg Eisenberg's with Islands is. Uh, the, which he never really like did as much, but we talked about it, was the constraints around the channels that people could join, these islands that people could join. And so making, making little rules, like if you're in a group, this group, you can only post photos, or this group, you can only post five words. Every message must be five words. You know, or this group, you can only post your receipts, you know, and you can automatically you know, trigger it, connect it to your credit card, and it just posts things from your receipts, but imagine like an at scale social experience with friends, with these constraints, which as we know, fuel creativity. I mean, that people love that stuff. You know, Webby's were notorious. I think they had five word acceptance speeches and it became kind of like viral as a result. So I think there's some fun ideas there, you know, in terms of, uh, yeah, new, 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 new kind of rules for, for messaging. New constraints for, for sure. The, the the other thing I, I want to exist is basically quantifying fandom in a better way. So if mm. I'm one of the first users of Stratechery, I just a, a blog people are passionate about, or, or whatever it is, or this new band, or this new whatever, I can sort of you know claim my like get a collectible. It's like claim my. It's almost like Foursquare for the internet in 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 an interesting way. Um, it's a uh, reminds me of the one. What was the Seeky's uh, business? Oh, famous where. Yeah. You could buy and own, and 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 it would be stolen away from you. But the identities yeah. of all these famous people and brands, which of course got shut down, but yeah. was an amazingly fun thing. Yeah, when viral, got shut down. Yeah, there, there's definitely something there. Morgan DM me a question. Morgan, would you like to ask it? Hey, Scott. I liked hearing Eric like do a quick Shark Tank round with you, though, for all the ideas that he's been thinking about. So I don't want to interrupt that, but I will ask a question. So what's a product or company that has failed in the past that you think it was a timing thing? And if it was to pop up today, it might have a chance. I mean, Preferred definitely is up there. I'm still looking for someone <laughs> to do this. Uh, I'm biased on that one, though, of course. Let me think. It's a, tough, it's a tough business model, but Circa. Does everyone remember Circa, the news app? Beautifully designed product, Matt uh, Galligan. The idea was you could follow a story. And think about it, actually. To this day, if you read a story in the news anywhere, you can't follow it and know what happens next, which is wild to me because news is like one of the most popular formats of media. And, uh, and everyone always wants to know what happens next in any series, television show, or movie. So that was their simple insight that they had was you could follow a story. They never really nailed it and also never, for whatever reason, didn't catch on you know, as widely. But um, that's another one. I think the timing was wrong. I think that there wasn't, I don't know, the graph wasn't there. They weren't as plugged in as they could have been now for social media. You know, it just wasn't there yet. I'll keep thinking about it. Did you have a take on HQ trivia or just sort of 
live video on the internet more, more broadly? Well, from the Periscope days, you know, I learned it was a very engaging format. You know, the, and I talked with Russ at, at HQ, you know, quite a bit about, you know, the retention issue and some ideas around how do you have a, a vanity metric that survives the game? Because to me, people, I always like to say the dirty little secret about products like Instagram is you go in more to see who saw your content than to see other people's content. And so if you keep scrolling that out, you know, it's really about accumulating this social value that you can then project to the world about something you're great at, you know, or something you love or you're passionate about. And that's why these metrics matter. You know, how many points you have, how many discoveries you've made, how many followers you have, how many likes this, I mean, we hate to admit it as humans, but it's true. You know, this stuff is, these are, these are those ego analytics I mentioned at the beginning. With HQ Trivia, the question was like, how can you become a, a bona fide superstar? And how could you also have that scale? Like, you know, the, your, your score and how could everyone in their own little group of friends have a leaderboard? And it becomes this like, you know, um, this, you know, thing that it ultimately retains you over time. But any, any product I find that, you know, starts all over again every single time, I guess Fortnite's is probably an exception to that. Although there's some things that accumulate there, but. Um, yeah, that was one thought I had around that experience. Can, can you flesh out ego analytics a little bit more in terms of like what what if you really understand that concept, what new ideas could come to mind? Or, or, or I've never heard that term. Can you just share more about it? Yeah, so it's I think it's about um, you know one of my favorite product slogans is from Dave Marin, who once told me the devil's in the default, and I use that all the time because I think it's all that matters in product experiences and in helping a user succeed. And in the default experience, can you help the customer know how successful they're being in your product? And so that could mean anything from a, you know, seeing your number of followers and likes or whatever else. You know, on Behance, we would show people the graphs of their of their appreciations that they got in their projects and their view count and, you know, and and those really drove engagement because people started feeling momentum and velocity. And it goes back to um I remember a professor of mine at Harvard Business School, Teresa Mable, did this huge study in organizations around creativity. And the whole study basically yields this insight that progress begets progress, that people have to feel like they're making progress in order to make more progress. And so as we have teams, and if we're not merchandising the progress our teams are making back to the team, they'll feel lost. They'll feel like they're in the back of a car with the windows blacked out and they don't know if they've made any, you know, any movement uh, along the journey. And so in some ways in the product, we have to make the customer feel like they're making progress. And that's to me like ego analytics is a tool to do that. Yes, sorry. Hey, Scott, uh, thanks so much for doing this. Um, my name is David, I, I run a coding bootcamp. So I'm curious your thoughts on what the future of, or you know, is there anything past the resume, past the portfolio, past the GitHub that you know better connects you know people who with skills to employers. Yeah, I mean, one thing I'm really excited about is the power of attribution in creativity and it extends itself to development as well. I mean, it's pretty amazing that we can't go to any website and see hidden in the code exactly who did what. I mean, think about what that would do for developers' careers. If you go to any website and see exactly who did what for that technology, 
you can do it in a movie. If you're watching a movie, the credits will tell you who the first grip and the second grip and the, you know, every single person who was involved with the movie gets attribution and therefore opportunity in their careers based on how well the movie performed. And we don't have that yet for any digital creations. And so I think about that a lot from both the developer. Well, I'm about and to go register side. a domain like devcreditroll.com or something. That's, there a, you that's, go. that's an amazing idea. I just I, I never thought about it that my resume is a bunch it's of lines. I can't, it's not a portfolio that I can just say, hey, I did, you know. Right. Uh, and you can get a plugin that exposes that information to every website and digital experience you ever encounter. And in one fell swoop, you could have full attribution of every designer and developer on the planet, everyone uh, would insert in the code. And you'd have career meritocracy because maybe people would find. I mean, that would be the most viral done. thing because I'm sure every developer, if some like NPM or you know, you use a package managers, and then you, uh, you're absolutely right because 90 percent of develop developers aren't open source developers, right? Just I'm sure like 90 percent of designers don't get their name in the exit no. data or something. Which right? is just, and that's just like a cultural thing because there's no need, there's no reason for that not to be the case. I mean, one thing we just did. In, in Photoshop two weeks ago as we launched this new thing called the Content Authenticity Initiative, which one purpose of it is to help people know, you know, if a piece of content was edited. So there's like a, you know, a sort of a, a fake fake media play there of helping, you know, people know what they can trust. But then the other part of it was actually just fostering attribution and work because essentially we can make it so that anyone who does anything in one of our tools like Photoshop can have that kind of work attributed back to them for career opportunities. So, you know, I think that there's definitely inroads here that we could make. I think it would be a big, big deal. Awesome. That's it. What, why have you uh, incubated this company, Scott? Oh, it's on my list. Believe me, I have a very long list of these crazy ideas. <laughs> Brian. Yeah, I was just kind of thinking the, uh, the reverse of Morgan's question would be interesting too. If you, you talked about some things that you're excited about. I'm curious to hear what are some things that you're bearish on? And is there a particular macro trend that will potentially pull the markets away from that current trend that's hot right now? Yeah, that's a good question. Let's, let's put it this way. I think that uh, video is, we're over-indexing on video as it relates to the future of work. And I actually don't think the future of work has that much to do with video. So I'm probably in the minority on that, but it's a inefficient, judgmental, superficial, self-conscious format. And it's, uh, you know, and it's synchronous as opposed to asynchronous. And it's just, uh, and it and also drives us crazy by the end of the day. So I think there's going to be something greater than that. Um, that's also going to be assisted by intelligence. You know, you want to, you want to have the conversations with people that matter. And you also want to have conversations you didn't know you needed. You want some spontaneity as a service. Um, and so I feel like those are some of the more interesting trends, you know, in that space. I, I'm, I'm notoriously bearish on productivity tools. Uh, my view is that just like there, everyone focuses on the switching costs of productivity tools and the fact that once you get someone in productivity tool that they won't want to leave. But you've seen the migration from Trello to the other clubhouse to, you know, others, you know, it's like keeps going on and on. And I think what that's, symbolic of is the fact that there's actually switching benefits as opposed to switching costs. When we take over a project as a program manager or project manager, it's like, oh, okay, I got to do some spring cleaning here. Let me go through our, our, our inventory of tickets and clean it up. Oh, and by the way, let's try this new tool. There's this notion of like novelty breeds utility or, and, and, and loyalty. You know, when you feel attracted to a new system, when you're excited by it, 
you get like reinvigorated in the project, we switch our own tools occasionally, you know, actually more than occasionally. So I, I really wonder if these productivity tools, if there's ever like really in the modern day, like a winner take all mindset. I mean, maybe Basecamp was really smart to remain a small, mostly private company that just distributes cash, you know, to its owners because maybe it shouldn't be a venture back business. Vic. So Scott, hey, thanks uh, for joining us today. Um, you talked about you and you and Eric had both talked about this idea of all these, you know, solo investors, small investors, boutique investors coming in or raising around from them instead of kind of some of the bigger houses. And I've seen some of my friends do that as well. How does that work exactly? So let's say you raise from like eighty solo investors. How does the founder extract value from each of those investors? And how do how does an investor like you, when you're pooled with so many? How do you find space to give insight and input when there could be maybe five or 10 of you with similar, right? Similar superpowers, not the exact same. Can you, can you talk through that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Well, typically these, you know, these rounds that, that I, that I'm involved in the lease are typically, you know, seven to 12 investors. So it's not, you know, it's not 80 and it's not like a, you know, big uh, pool of, um, you know, of, of very small investments. I think though that, I mean, you asked a really good question about the way that uh, an entrepreneur uses his or her investors and how, you know, how you do it. I feel most used in a good way, you know, when the teams are coming to me being like, you know, I want 30 minutes to run through something specific. And they'll like tell me, and sometimes they'll even send me like a notion document or a prototype to review and, you know, beforehand. And it's like the most power 30 to 60 minutes, you know, ever. And, um, and they'll ask pointed questions. I actually did this this morning with them, um, with the pitch team in uh, Germany. You know, they were thinking through something in their product roadmap and they came like a week ago, Christian emailed me. He's like, this is a specific thing I want your insight on. And I got on and on the dot, they were the, the, the team, the key team was there and we like ran through it. Uh, so that, you know, that's a good feeling because I feel like I can add value and they feel, and you know, they, they know exactly what I'm useful for. And I think they'll also ask their investors, like, what do you, what do you, how do you help your teams? Like, how, how are you most helpful? And it's good, you know, to, um, to have a specific list to give of things you can do. So I think that's part of, you know, that's part of it is asking the right questions up front, you know, being very descriptive, et cetera. And as an investor, it's good to like manage expectations and tell your team, like, these are the few things I'm going to be interested in. Like when I talk to these data science type products, um, some of which I'm an investor and I'm like, listen, I'm never going to help you on the data science side of this. So like, you know, I'm going to hurt you if you ask me those questions. I'm really going to give you the bad answers. But, you know, these are the things that I think I can do. Clarity helps. Maybe including here, Scott, just looking towards the future. I know one thing you're thinking a lot about is the uh, the future of, of creativity. What does what that, uh, that mean to you? Yeah. I mean, it's another, um, it's another interesting space these days, you know, both in the venture world there are a lot of cool new companies. Um, you know, I, you know, and again, I'm obviously biased because I, you know, have seen the, um, I've, I've just been part of the Adobe DNA for a while. But um, first of all, every new medium falls flat unless it's filled with incredible, interactive, you know, unbelievable creativity. The web didn't take off until that was there. Mobile didn't take off until that was there. And the same thing will be for the world of augmented reality you know, and to some extent, virtual reality, like you need to outfit creatives to contribute and do that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of really cool stuff happening in that space that I'm really excited about. 
Um, I also think that the, the days of desktop software there, you're like kind of imprisoned to a desktop system and files is, is, is also old. And so, you know, that's why I focus with the teams. I'm bringing Photoshop and now cloud documents. You know, if you're publishing Photoshop documents to the cloud, you can pick up on iPad and you can imagine that extends to other platforms and, you know, other places where you'd want to do creativity over time. So I think that you'll, creativity will be a platform agnostic services first, you know, in the cloud experience that enables all kinds of collaboration and, you know, uh, integrations that we, you know, can only fathom right now. It's really cool. And the other thing I would say about this whole creativity space is that what are humans going to do? You know, we're, we've got like, we're kind of effed, you know, everything's going to be replaced by AI. You know, every job is essentially at risk to some extent. And I think humans are going to have to do the things that only humans can do. And chief among them is to express yourself visually, you know, to be creative and stand out at work, to be creative and stand out on social, to be a content creator. And so creativity tools are suddenly in vogue. You know, the top of our funnel is so different now than it was 10 years ago at Adobe. It's unbelievable. Like people are just coming in from everywhere. And um, of course, we need new tools and new experiences, new interfaces for sure to accommodate these people because products like After Effects are freaking hard. You know, there's steep learning curves for a lot of these products. But that's exciting. I think that's like one of the biggest opportunities. I think there will be a lot of companies that win, you know, in that space. And then last one, just because it's on, on, on path. Uh, Sharos, do you, you want to ask? Sure. Hey, how are we going to creatively collaborate in this remote world? I'm having such a hard time not being able to whiteboard. Yeah, I know. It's, I mean, the good news is there's like a million companies thinking about it right now. The bad news is that they're not there yet, right? I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm too, I, I'm an optimist on this front. I feel like uh, the constraints we're living under right now are going to fuel so many creative solutions to this that we would never have had otherwise. I think that we're being kind of, we're missing the forest for the trees by being in Zoom all day. You know, there's different places we need to be and be doing. So you're nodding your head. I think we agree on that. I'm with you. And I'm looking. As you think about the downsides of your ego analytics framework, right? Addiction, humans becoming zombies. Do you see a world where tech embraces consumer products that have different ways of creating value? in a way that makes a human whole again, or just something other than addiction? I, you know, I feel like we need to use some of the same tools that hurt us to help us. I mean, one great example is Apple's, you know, um, new like kind of timing technologies. And you, you know, and when you start to see your screen time, then you start to reduce it because, but that's ego analytics playing, you know, it's the same tool. It's just using it to, train good behavior as opposed to entice bad behavior. So, you know, I feel like we're, you know, we're, we're governed, we're governed by short-term rewards. We have dopamine, whether we like it or not, you know, and I, I just hope that as designers of experiences, we can leverage those reflexes for good. And, have you um, seen anything yeah. yet that you're excited about that's maybe in the early stages? On that front? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I've seen, you know, I, I mean, almost all the designers I know are actually thinking about this right now. And they're, you know, they're, they're, they're thinking about how you can reduce cognitive load, you know, how you can, I mean, even when I talk to, you know, friends at these big social platforms that are the most guilty of this, they are asking the right questions. They're like, well, what if we remove the like, what would happen? Let's run a test and let's see, you know, what if we, 
you know, hit this by default as opposed to show it? And would that change behavior and how would it change behavior? So I think we're, I think people are starting, people are awoken to it. They're just not, we haven't cracked it yet. And listen, practically speaking, it's hard. I mean, companies are not going to change their product overnight in a way that craters their business. They're going to have to test their way into it, but they do want to, at least the ones that I talk to. That's great. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Perfect place to, to, to wrap. In a, in a second, I'm going to ask everyone to unmute your mics and uh, and give uh, Scott a, a round of applause. Scott, thanks so much for... Oh, this is awesome. Here. Eric, thanks for doing this. Awesome. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc. suggestions or feedback head over right now to twitter and facebook and like share and get involved join us next time please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice the opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services